Jeff, why do you teach writing? I've been fascinated with the technique of writing ever since I got into it. Well, really it started in prep school when I had three good English teachers in a row and I always responded in a course if I liked the teacher. If I didn't like the teacher, I wouldn't perform. If I did, I would go for it. And we had these, one teacher was a Scottish fellow who spent three months reading Macbeth to us and translated translated it all and translated the you know the the ambient world of Shakespeare to help make more sense of it and he would read a few lines of Macbeth and then talk for 45 minutes about what was going on and end up at the end of that talk about how in the old west the idea that you could pull out your revolver and shoot somebody's gun out of their hand he said that's so unrealistic because you could put one of those pistols in a vice and never hit the same spot twice. So that would be like just the level of, you know, interesting material that I was being exposed to and I learned how to write there, write essays and stuff like that. So that when I ran into a fellow in Vermont who was a playwright and he offered to teach a friend of mine playwriting, I asked if I could jump in on that. He taught us the basics of Aristotle and he gave us these two books to read and I sat down and read them for three years, uh, pretty much all I did, trying to, at first, because I was a painter before that, so I come into playwriting knowing nothing and knowing that I knew nothing, so it makes it easier to learn if you don't already think you know it. And this fellow, William Thompson Price, uh, was, he was a, a script doctor to Broadway producers around 1910. Um, he helped revise every play that this uh, producer, uh, David Belasco, produced on Broadway. He's quite famous. And so many people were coming to him asking for help with their scripts and with the tools he created for playwriting technique that he started the first school of playwriting ever. And uh, he had 28 students, 24 of them had hits on Broadway. And he wrote this one book in 1908, which is the one I sat down and started reading. At first, I couldn't understand it. It was really dense and complex, but I kept working my way through it. And he kept checking in as a teacher saying, you have to understand what I just explained, otherwise you should just forget the whole thing, because this is key. So, and I would, I would stop and he'd go stop and think about it and see if you understand it. And at first I was like, I really don't understand it at all. So I go back and reread it and I still didn't understand it because it was, it's like when Einstein said when he first started studying uh, theoretical physics, the stuff that he specialized in, he was stupefied by it for the first two years. It was so complex that he was stupefied by it. This material is obviously, you know, way easier than that, but the degree of complexity was still a lot for me. And so I read Price's book and then his student's book, and then I read Price's book again and his student's book again. And after a while, I got to where I was understanding what they were talking about felt like I still couldn't use it. 
And so when I started teaching people, I did hands-on training. I did small groups, maximum six people. Each person had to bring their own story that they were working on so I could get them actually using the tool instead of them just listening to me talk about it. Because I understood that you could get to a place where you understand it and still not be able to actually use it. So that's why I would work hands-on with each person in the group. And just the science of it and the art of it is, has always been fascinating. And it's just something that people have responded well to the know-how that I was giving them. And it was stimulating and, and interesting. So I've just remained fascinated by it. Have you ever thought back to with those three teachers had they been teachers that maybe you didn't necessarily want to perform for or impress or have like your work, the trajectory of what your life would have been? Yeah, no, I wouldn't have been fascinated with writing. I don't think it ever would have come up. I mean, I love to read and I love movies and plays and great novels and that kind of thing. But as a as something that I felt strongly compelled to dive into and gain a mastery of. I don't know if it would have been there. How important is it for you to have students feel similar? Maybe you can disagree on many things, but at least they want to do well for you. How, how important is that and how does one establish that? I'm not entirely sure, partly because by the time they seek out someone like me, they already have some kind of passion for the material. Uh, now, I may awaken in them a deeper passion uh, as they see that they could, as they see that there's more perhaps than they thought there was to learn and that because the way in which I teach is, is, is scientific in its own way because each of the tools has certain distinctions. Like to use the tool properly, you have to be able to make certain distinctions. For instance, like in Dilemma, it consists of two equally unacceptable alternatives. So there's real distinctions in that. So it's two, two painful choices and for, the, for it to be a real dilemma, they have to be equally unacceptable. Because if you, you could have two unacceptable choices where do you want to get burned by a match or do you want to jump in the lava, those are both unacceptable, but they're nowhere near equal. But if you have to choose between, you know, sacrificing your husband or your son to like, you know, a slave owner who's going to take one or the other, you, that's, that, when they're equal and of magnitude, then it really paralyzes the protagonist and renders the material riveting to the audience. So the distinctions are key for using the tools properly. And so once a student sees that there's a real specificity to the use of these tools, and if you use them properly and fully, you can get tremendous power, especially out of a story that has promised but has not been performing for them. So that the ability to 
It's kind of like being a martial arts teacher from one point of view where somebody may have some fighting skills, but you're able to go, look, you keep your elbow up and they can, you know, there's certain technical things that you can show them that you can turn them into a considerably better fighter pretty quickly if they already have some basic skills by, no, by key distinctions and observation and just know-how so that it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's a process of giving students genuine know-how and once they see that they really could master this stuff if they apply themselves and they've seen their script improve a lot from working hands-on with me in the class, that that can really give them a fire in the belly because whereas before they just wanted to write stories, now they understand the distinction between a storyteller and a dramatist and that if you're going to turn, a, if you're going to adapt a story for a theatrical presentation, whether that's a film, TV show, theater, that it has to be, the story has to be stage worthy. It has to be able to be performed by an actor in such a way that it grips the audience. So there's a lot of specificity to making a theatrical presentation of a story work in such a way that it really grips an audience. And once they get a handle on, this is considerably different than what I thought it was, and that's only true for some people. Some people come in with a lot of knowledge already, and I'm just showing them a few more tools. But, they're, but the tools are powerful enough that they can see that if they really apply themselves and learn to use them fully and properly, that they'll, their scripts will tend to work. And so that can really amplify somebody's passion. Tell us about your cognitive apprenticeship. The cognitive apprenticeship is quite fascinating. It was something that I discovered just as I was beginning to um, create this particular training program. I had thought about it for a good couple years because I always taught in small hands-on groups and I didn't see how to teach bigger groups because the material is complex and sophisticated enough that in my experience, unless I got you doing it on your script, that it was abstract enough so that even if you listen to an explanation of it, then when you go home and try to do it on your own partially formed script, you generally don't have enough know-how and experience and just general knowledge and working know-how to, to use it across a broad spectrum of ideas. So I spent a couple of years trying to figure out how to teach larger groups. And in the process of that, I also studied the science of how people learn. And that has grown and changed tremendously in the last 100 years and hugely in the last 50 years. They've figured out so much about the science of how people learn to the point where they even have people in an MRI and they're doing experiments on them, teaching them things and seeing which parts of their brain light up and all that so that they understand much more completely how people learn. They've even figured out 
that in the process of acquiring an expert skill, that the brain creates a neural network specifically for the acquisition and retention of that particular skill. And if you're, and the more that you practice it with complete attention, complete attention and strong intention, that this neural network, you can picture it like a dirt road which connects two, two sections of the brain very close together and the signal travels from one to the other. And the more you diligently practice, like if you're learning to be a baseball pitcher and you practice over and over and really stay focused with a good coach, that that neural network gets enhanced. It literally grows and changes. And what they found is that the brain does what's called myelination. It's a, it's a fatty coating that insulates that neural network from outside chatter. So it gets more focused and that myelination continues. So that neural network literally gets broader and faster. And so it turns into an information superhighway where it used to be a dirt road. And so the people that have substantial expert skills, it's built into their brain and it will never go away. It does not go away. So like, for instance, when I was a kid, I did a lot of games um, like Skittle Bowl, which is a, a thing on a ball on a chain and you send it around and it comes in and you're bowling. And I did that, you know, thousands of times and I got quite good with the motion. So that there was one game where it's two steel rods connected at one end and there's a steel ball and you have to squeeze the rods together and that forces the ball to go slightly uphill. And it's really hard to master because the ball keeps falling through. It's a touch where you have to you're letting it roll downhill slightly and squeezing them together so it keeps going up and let it, and you gradually work it up. And I got really good at that when I was like 12 or something. I did it constantly. And I saw one in somebody's house a couple years ago. I went up to it, I was like, oh, I used to be able to do this. And I tried it. And on the very first try, I did it perfectly. And this is like really, really hard to do. And so it shows you like that once it's really seated in your brain at that level, that it's permanent. In the process of studying this fascinating material about the science of learning and, and looking at how I taught, because I didn't want to teach the same way I did. I didn't find it effective enough to do a 30-hour intensive, which is very much like firehose teaching, where I'm just hammering you with a complex array of information that's not easy to retain. And I always felt dissatisfied, like I could do more, I could do better. I, they could they could come away from my training with very substantial skills instead of some sense of it and really excited about it. And so I pulled a lot of interesting stuff together and teaching techniques. And then a week before uh, lockdown hit, I sat down and started building this particular training program full time. And then COVID hit and I had even more time because I wasn't driving the kids around and that kind of stuff. So I really focused and I found this essay, one of the, one of the books on the science of learning talked about these people who did some interesting stuff with the science of learning. I looked them up and found an essay they had written uh, about cognitive apprenticeship, which is, which is built upon a standard apprenticeship, which is how people learn best. Um, you know, working with a master to become a shoemaker, barrel maker, that kind of thing. That's been around for 
thousands of years. And so all of that is still there. It's still very much an apprenticeship. But the cognitive apprenticeship has to do with the cognitive skills that accompany some sorts of training processes. Like, for instance, if you're apprenticing to a lawyer, say, they wouldn't call it apprenticeship these days, but you're still studying right with people in the law. Sure, there's lots of stuff of like how you do things and what you say in court and, and the technicalities of the law, but so much of it is cognitive facility of how you think. So the process of how you think from one point of view is everything in, in a, in a skill set like that. So it was fascinating in that as I'm trying to, as I'm sitting down to create this training program, and it's going to be a two-year training program for writers uh, in the craft of the dramatist that I found this 30-page essay. And as I'm reading it, I'm going like, this is like to the T exactly what I'm doing. So it was like finding, you know, a high-performing rocket fuel right when you're building a rocket. Like you didn't know you even needed it. And then somebody shows up with this stuff and it changes everything. So I spent a month reading these 30-page essay over and over again. Read it once, read it once, yellow highlight, then went over that and pink highlight and then worked with that and typed up all the highlighted things and sorted them for prioritization and categorization and put them on three by five cards and like, okay, I need to put this into this part of training someone in the craft of the dramatist. And it really consolidated and amplified so much of what I was doing. And, you know, the, the, the craft of the dramatist is so much, it's, it's more a way of thinking than a set of rules. It's the habits of mind of a trained dramatist is what I'm training people in. And that's what it's always been. But these people were talking about exactly that, the habits of mind that go along with teaching something sophisticated to people. So it was a fully developed science that through a couple of years of hard work, I hit upon just at the right moment. And I really built that into the course in every way possible so that I was constantly using what I had learned about the science of how people learn the science of cognitive apprenticeship and the, and the science of training for expertise, um, I was always using that to change how I teach to the point where I would finish one lesson and be getting ready to start another whole tool. And one of the things they talk about um, I'm not sure if it was in cognitive apprenticeship or in the science of expertise. The science of expertise is quite fascinating. This fellow named Anders Ericsson created it in 1983. It was not a science before that. He started visiting uh, these training facilities around the world that turned out disproportionately large numbers of high-level ballerinas, chess players, Olympic ski champions, all these highly specialized skills and some people were turning out 
substantial experts more than anybody else. So he went and visited them and hung out with them and studied what they were doing and took all the stuff that he learned from these coaches and studied it scientifically and then took it even further. And he died this summer, but his last book called Peak really synthesized it all really substantially. And that's considered the high watermark in the, wor in the world of training expertise. This guy invented the science, changed the whole thing. And um, then the last book is the, is, the, is the high watermark. And that's required reading in my course. It's course material for the class. So one of the things they talk about either in the science of learning or peak in, in the science of expertise is that they've found that the harder it is to learn something, the better you retain it. So what I did, so they talk about changing gears, pulling the rug out from under the students, flipping things on their head, making them work for it, all these ways to make it, to make them more independent and aggressive and proactive as learners means that it sticks much better in them because you want permanent substantial know-how, not mere knowledge. If you know stuff about things, that doesn't mean you can actually do it at a professional level just because you have knowledge about it. So uh, as like well, I finished one course and I was getting ready to one lesson and I was changing to another whole topic. And I was like, okay, so how can I utilize what I've learned best now that I'm starting a whole new area. And one of the things they've found that's quite fascinating is that if you give, if you make people tackle a problem before they've been trained in it, that it makes them better students, better thinkers. For instance, in math, a teacher would give you a problem that you're not equipped to solve yet and that you haven't been trained in yet. And the teacher would say, look, I'm not trying to get you to solve it. I just want you to wrestle with it. Take a whack at it, see what you can do. And then when the teacher explains the tool later on and the teacher is showing one complex part of that equation and the teacher says, so here's the trick for how you do this particular thing. Instead of the students being there like, I hate this stuff. They're like, oh, that's how you do that. Wow, look at that. They're invested in it. They've already done part of the work. And they're like, they're, you know, they're aggressive, independent thinkers really trying to learn it rather than bored kids wishing they were out playing Frisbee or whatever. So it's a, it's a way to, it's a specific methodology of teaching that is proven to work. And so I brought that in as much as I could into training in the craft of the dramatist so that I will give my students a complex idea that I haven't trained them in yet and ask them to just think it through. And it's an exercise called think it through. Just think about it for 15 minutes and then write for five minutes. And I'm not expecting you to get it right. Some of you know more than others and you will. Some of you don't know anything, but take a whack at it. Like what's the difference between a storyteller and a dramatist? There's real distinctions. And 
someone with more experience would understand that. Someone who doesn't might have trouble with it, but they can wrestle with it and they can think about it. And whatever thinking they do adds up and it informs their learning process and it turns them into more sophisticated students. Uh, for instance, one of the things in my class is that not only do I not answer, I only really teach one thing, the craft of the dramatist, and I don't answer any questions about anything else because I, need, I want the focus and I don't want questions that are unrelated. And I don't answer stupid questions where I'll say, no, you go think about that some more. You're just tossing out a dumb question. Like you see that a lot on like Facebook writer groups where people post these really dumb questions like, should my protagonist's girlfriend have red hair? It's like, first of all, who cares? But why are you asking us? That's my main reaction is, you can't figure that out on your own. It's like, you know, you're a writer. Get some grit, dig in and figure it out. And so that all factors into the cognitive apprenticeship because I'm teaching them how to think and how to process and how to tackle things at a professional level. And so that by the time they've gone through the program, they will be much more aggressive, independent thinkers. And they also learn to evaluate their own ideas. You have to be able to generate ideas and you also have to be able to evaluate them. Because you can make up stuff all day long, but if half of it's no good and you can't tell the difference, it doesn't do anybody any good. You're not going to sell it. You know, it's, it's not working. So one of the things I do is that in the forum with the groups of students, I might give them an assignment if we're all working on the same script. I'd say, okay, we got to figure out a way that she can sneak the gun into this room before the meeting. And it has to be good. It can't be some stupid idea. So let's your assignment is to come up with 10 different ways she could sneak the gun into the room. And then when they, before they post it, post their answer on the forum that everybody can see, I say, then look at your ideas and bubble sort them. Let the best ones bubble to the top. So your top three are good. And then post them and then everybody look at everybody else's and take, take the best of all those and bubble sort those into the best so that what you bring me is the top 30 out of what maybe hundreds or more ideas. And then I'm making them do the work so that they're gaining skill at creating, evaluating, collaborating, which is also very important in the entertainment industry. And they can work as a team to present me with ideas that are everywhere from very good to incredibly good to off the charts good. And some of them might be so good that we're like, wow, that's a whole screenplay on itself. Let's park that over here and make that into something. So that it's a, it's a way of just making them into professional storytellers on top of seasoned, versatile dramatists, because you've got to have both. Uh, great storytelling without craft as a dramatist it still won't be stage-worthy. It won't work as a performance piece that actors can act and will grip an audience. 
And mere structure isn't worth very much either. Well-structured crap is still crap. It just runs like a Swiss watch. So you really got to have both. And so the cognitive apprenticeship is apprenticeship in the craft of the dramatist, how to make a story work dramatically, and the craft of storytelling, and the whole thought process thought processes that go into all of that is crucial because how you think is how you mold your story and how you dramatize it and just your general attack as a storyteller. So you're coming up with things that are fresh and things that aren't, you know, just cliche and easy to come up with, you know, so it's about challenging them and making them work for it and really bringing up their level of expertise and their cognitive facilities. And then there's one more layer in cognitive apprenticeship, which is that you not only need the actual hard skill, but you also need the cognitive facility, the subtle thinking habits and often hidden thinking habits that the expert has, some of which the expert doesn't even know they're doing. So by spending time with them, you gradually see how they tackle a problem, even if they're not aware of all of it, because they may have forgotten a bunch of it 20 years ago, or sort of invented it subconsciously, or just have good habits because of all their training. And so in addition to the hard skill and the cognitive facility, there's also what's called metacognition, which is the ability to evaluate your own cognitive process to get above your own professional thinking process and go, you know, I think I was going about this all wrong. Like what I was doing was correct, but I think I'm like in the wrong ballpark. So the ability to look at your thinking and go, God, you know, I think I was completely wrong about that whole part of it. And then you like, you may invent a whole new way to do it or just change gears or, you know, maybe you had a, team of 10 people working on a project for you and you realize that they didn't need, to, one person doing it for two days could do what they were trying to do 10 people in two weeks. But the other part of the problem, you should have had 30 people on for the last three months because you noticed how much more significant this one piece of the puzzle was when you stepped back and looked at your own cognitive process. So it's the it's the ability to um, master your own mastery in a certain way. And that's a, that's a key component of cognitive apprenticeship as well. But it's a, full, it's a full bunch of skill sets and it really lends itself well to training people in the craft of script writing. Never let anyone tell you that a story's already been told? Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, It goes back to <clears throat> being a bull in a china shop as a writer, that your attack as a storyteller is so key to succeeding as a writer um, lazy writing, limp writing, it's it's often so forgettable and the key word in the entertainment industry is outrageousness. People 
go to the movies or watch a TV show or go to the theater to see something extraordinary, something different, something energizing, something fun or exciting or meaningful or cathartic. So it has to do with a rebellious streak where, you know, many people have heard the saying, there's nothing new under the sun, every story's been told, there's only seven basic stories or three basic stories or whatever. And part of me completely understands that. And part of me, that just pisses me off. It's like, you know, You can't tell me that I can't come up with something that, that you've never seen that will, it just, it's like waving a red flag in front of a bull. It, it just makes me mad and it, it brings out the attack in me and the, the desire to shatter people's expectations and blow people's minds and take them where they've never been and just violate their expectations, violate my own storytelling rut. You know, it's, you know, think of a movie like Being John Malkovich. You know, it's like so off the beaten track. And I'm sure there was somebody telling the writer, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's not how stories go. It's like, it's just weak. And it's, it's such a lack of adventure and a lack of courage and, and just, you know, one of my favorite terms is attack as a storyteller. How much attack do you bring to the table? What are, what are the ways that you can dazzle an audience, take them on a ride that they've never been on? And if you accept the idea that you can't possibly come up with something that nobody's ever seen, then it, it kind of takes the wind out of your sails in a certain way. It says, you're, you're not all that creative. You can't come up with something. It's like, I, I refuse to play that way. I go the other end of the spectrum. I always want to know what are the extremes in any story idea, just to see what they are. Often, you know, you'll find yourself if you're trying to solve a story problem where you got to figure out a specific thing in a story where there's kind of a normal set of possibilities and then there's unusual possibilities and then there's extreme possibilities. And like, for instance, the Coen brothers say that if somebody can figure out our next move, if they had a week to figure it out and they can figure it out in a week, we're not going to use it. They go way above and beyond shaking up your expectations, violating your expectations. If you're trying to solve a story problem and you have a selection of possibilities for ways you could get out of that situation or whatever, one of the things I've found is really fun is, is to not only look at the extremes because it gets you out of the stock choices and the ordinary, 
But what I also want to know, just out of pure curiosity, is what's the single craziest possibility in the whole universe for that particular choice? What's like wildly crazy? And usually it won't work at all. But sometimes you'd be like, well, that's interesting. If I backed it down a few notches, it could start to fit into my arena. And it's really fresh and different and takes the story in a different direction and shakes up the character. And every once in a while, that single craziest idea works brilliantly in a completely unexpected way. I've had that happen to me where I said, well, what's the single craziest idea? And it would be like, well, it would be that. And I'd be like, whoa, I never would have thought of that. And I'm using that. It's great. So it's that's part of attack as a storyteller, just going for it and not just stretching the envelope, envelope, but, you know, obliterating it and just having fun. You know, it's writing fun. But you're using analogies similar to war in some, or combat in some way. Is is going, facing the the page every day like combat it's a good question because it depends in many ways on who you are because if you are someone with the martial arts skills of bruce lee say then you get into the ring with pretty much any fighter you can figure something out. So it's so it's not like, God, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm staring at the blank page. It's like, no, I can I can make this work. You know, this guy weighs 600 pounds, so I gotta figure something out. But you know, Bruce Lee's gonna bring a lot of stuff to the table. So the more skill you have as a storyteller and as a scriptwriter, as a dramatist, the less intimidated you are by a normal array of writing challenges. Now, <clears throat> you really want to get in over your head. If it's all too easy, then you're not doing your job right. So, like if I'm starting in on a script and it starts to get complex and deep, part of my brain goes, uh-oh, we're getting in over our, my head here. And the other part of my brain goes, yeah, that's, that's good. That's where you wanna be. And they say that writers are like show horses. They're not happy unless they're trying to jump over something that could kill them. And I was thinking about that last night and I found a actually much better analogy is that writers are like extreme rock climbers or something. They're not happy climbing something unless it could well kill them. If it's too less of a challenge, they're like, they're bored. That's, they get their adrenaline from the fact that nobody's ever climbed this cliff and they're doing it with no ropes and they're hanging by, you know, like two fingers on a piece of rock that big. And they're like, this is fun. This is life. And they don't want to do anything else. They even found that the, like the combat nurses and medics who came back from Vietnam couldn't go back to a normal job. It was too, I can't sit in a corner and file papers. So they ended up as like emergency room physicians and, you know, frontline cops. So like they had to be in, in the deep stuff because it, it didn't cut it anymore for them. So the more craft you bring to the table, the less intimidated you are 
by the material, but you also want to be in over your head. Uh, they said that Bob Marley, who grew up on the water, when they got bored, he and his brother would swim out to sea as far as they could until they were completely exhausted. And then they'd try to make it back to shore. That was their idea of like a fun afternoon. So it's kind of like that. It's like the material should challenge you, but you should also be throwing hand grenades into your own story ideas to make your job harder to challenge yourself. So that like a rock climber is like, I'm not going to take that safe route. I'm going to do this dangerous route over here that nobody's ever done before. And it may well kill me, but I can't live without that level of challenge. So I'm not sure if that answered your question exactly. I think it does. I think that basically you're saying you need to be stimulated, but not bored and, and it can't be too easy. And so it's kind of like playing chess, a hobbyist playing chess with an expert versus a hobbyist playing chess with another hobbyist. Right. And that the, the more substantial your craft as a writer, the less it seems like, how can I possibly do this? You know, it's a job, it's a story. And of course it's challenging and it's hard, but like Bruce Lee facing whatever opponent, he's like, I may get my ass kicked, but I know what I'm doing and I can take this on. You know, I'm not, I'm, it's not like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's like, no, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I just have to figure out how to do it for this particular thing. Can you define a dramatist versus a storyteller? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> a storyteller is just making up a story. And any kind of story, whether you're making up a little five-minute story for your kid to go to sleep with or you're coming up with uh, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. Yeah, like high-end complex storytelling. That's huge. And to succeed as a scriptwriter, you need storytelling skills as big as you can get them. The craft of the dramatist is connected to storytelling, but distinct from it also. Because the craft of the dramatist is how you dramatize a story to adapt it for theatrical presentation. So it ha you have to make your story so that actors can perform it on film, on TV, on stage, and that it grips the audience. So the audience is on the edge of their seat wondering what comes next. You're making the material compelling and conformable, uh, performable. So the craft of the dramatist is ancient. <clears throat> Uh, the first person who really chimed in on it that we know of was Aristotle. He was not a playwright, but each year Athens had a religious theater festival in which a topic was assigned to the playwrights of Athens. So Aristotle would, over a couple day period, see 25 different versions of uh, Euripides. Not that was a playwright of... Um, I'm blanking on the name of the play, um, Oedipus. So uh, he was able to compare and contrast 
all these different playwrights' takes on the Oedipal myth. And he found that some of them put the audience to sleep and some of them really gripped the audience. And he's like, well, what is it about those dramas that grip an audience? Is there anything common among them? And he found that they tended to have a good, strong dilemma, building to a crisis, forcing decision and action in the face of crisis with, with a resolution of the dilemma by the protagonist and uh, a denouement, the upshot, the epilogue. Uh, these were things that Aristotle noticed tended to be common to those dramas that gripped an audience. And then throughout the years, there were French classicists who did amazing work and um, Shakespeare and, and you know just playwrights in general. And the science has continued to evolve. Um, there was a, a, a new set of tools were created by this um, script, this Broadway script doctor, William Thompson Price, uh, that he put out in his book 1908, and he was teaching to his students. And he created these tools because he found that most of the scripts that were submitted for Broadway productions that he was working with the Broadway producers on missed the mark in some way a high degree of them. And that's still true today that 90 to 95% of all scripts submitted are do not work at all. They're horrible, rejected, unreadable. And the, and the studio readers say, don't kid yourself, it's 98%. So what Price did was he said, these people are not landing in the ballpark very often and they're not stupid and they're good storytellers. They don't have enough craft as a dramatist. And Price was trained as a lawyer. That was his first profession. And being trained in the logic of argumentation, the ability to state a complete court case as A and B, therefore C, and that is a rigorous process. And if you present the logic of a court case in the proper way, then it's irrefutable. You prove your case by A and B, therefore C, and your client wins. So he said there ought to be a way to state the complete action of a script with that level of simplicity and clarity. And he, by, by adapting the proposition of logic to drama, he created this tool because a proposition is A and B, therefore C. You're proposing that this is true and this is true, therefore this is true. And he worked on it for a long time. He never ceased to be dissatisfied with it, but he created it and advanced it and was able to help their students. His students' plays work. 24 of his 28 students had hits on Broadway. Um, but he was constantly trying to synthesize it better. But it definitely worked. And um, there was another playwriting teacher who I found out later was, who taught Price's technique of the proposition after Price, Price died in 1920. Uh, Price's student wrote a book in 1928, which was what those two books I read for three years. 
And then this other playwriting teacher wrote a book in 1950, but he'd been teaching Price's Proposition and he advanced it even further. And what this teacher said was, um, trying to remember the exact wording. Can I read it to you from my book? It's, I have it right here, if that's helpful. Oh, you do? Okay. I know it by memory, but I'm not dredging up all of it. This is my book, Writing a Great Movie, uh, Key Tools for Successful Screenwriting. So let me read you actually a quote by Price about the proposition he's writing in 1912. One main proposition is the essence of unity. It is unity, and unity can be procured in no other way. It is impossible that two main ideas exist in the same play. The house will be divided against itself. Two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time. The play itself, that which is developed from the one idea, is about many things, but the discerning eye of the author should penetrate to the heart of things. True dramatic instinct, which is largely the product of training, usually does this with unerring promptness, for that one idea is naturally the largest idea. A proposition involves the whole play. It must have a certain magnitude, and the play must be commensurate with it. It suggests action, for the last clause requires that a problem be worked out, doubt is expressed, the facts are given, opposition is encountered. So that's Price talking about it. And then here is Bernard Grabagne in his book, Playwriting. He says, Eventually, Price was able to formulate his law of plot, the proposition, which we are quite willing to agree, is the one significant contribution to the science of playwriting since Aristotle's poetics. This was the judgment of many of his students, among whom were the most successful American dramatists of their generation. It is a large remark, but as we say, we do not dispute it, even though Price's very name seems unknown to the public or to the scholars these days. If we ourselves were asked to whom we were indebted for the basis of our ideas about playwriting, we should have to answer Aristotle and Price. Price really brought something entirely new to the craft of the dramatist, to the craft of making a story work dramatically for a presentation to an audience in such a way that it grips the audience. And it's, it's a, it's a complete craft in its own. And it's just entirely distinct from storytelling from one point of view, and yet completely married to it because you're dramatizing story. <clears throat> it's one of the things that I, an, an analogy that I recently stumbled onto, because what I'm teaching is seven powerful tools, and we spend two years learning them in this training program, so we'll spend months on each one. And you have to acquire expert facility with each tool, and then you gradually synthesize them together into one unified expertise. And I compare it to learning how to juggle while you're riding on a unicycle on a tightrope. You have to learn each of those skills separately and then synthesize them together into a fluid capability. <clears throat> so it's just a set of skills that you get better and better at, and you have to keep improving your storytelling because if your story ideas are weak, it doesn't 
matter how much craft you have as a dramatist, if your stories lack magnitude, then it's not going to help much. And that was a, a point echoed by uh, uh, Ted Elliott or Terry Rossio. They wrote uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and a whole bunch of other stuff. They said one of the most central problems we see in scriptwriters trying to succeed is that their core idea is poor. And that's so true. People put all this energy into trying to turn a weak idea into a stage-worthy script. <clears throat> and it's, it's so central to it. Uh, I had dinner with a showrunner of a top um, network uh, TV series. And she was saying that she sees so much bad writing that will not work for their show and she can't show it to their to the star because he won't do it. And she said that there's that the writing itself is often so poor that you have to like decipher it to get at what they're trying to say. And when you finally get down to the kernel of the idea, it sucks too. It's like there's no there, there. There's all this stuff built around something that doesn't work in the first place. So storytelling is hugely important. And the craft of the dramatist is hugely important. You can't succeed as a scriptwriter without both of them dialed to 11. How do most non-professional screenwriters create plot? Often it's the same as professional screenwriters, but professional screenwriters can evaluate what they're creating, <clears throat> whereas non-professionals don't have the ability to eyeball their material at a professional critique level so that they'll get excited about an idea they have and it can either be too derivative where it's been used in way too many movies or TV shows or stage plays so that most people wouldn't be interested in it unless the execution of it is extraordinary, which kind of by definition a non-professional scriptwriter is generally not capable of doing. Now, some people are just out-of-the-box geniuses and that's different, but not only is that extremely rare, but uh, Anders Ericsson in his book Peak said that they looked everywhere for prodigies who were out of the box and just could do it with no training as good as the best people. They said those people do not exist and they've scoured the earth for them. You hear about them, but it's not true. So that, for instance, say someone has an innate ability at chess and maybe they were a prodigy as at it as a kid, but didn't push 
their capabilities and they may still, still perceive themselves as a prodigy, but if you put them up against a genuine chess master, they've never found anybody who without the proper training could go all the way. Uh, and I'd never heard that before. I thought there was such a thing as prodigy. Anders Erickson calls it the prodigy myth, and they pretty much categorically disproved it. You know, and I think that writers who come out of left field and who never had any formal training and who write stuff that works in really unusual ways or they're just brilliant at it, they probably worked their butts off. It's not like they woke up one morning and said, I think I'll be a screenwriter today and spit out a masterpiece. They may be coming at it completely from left field, but they put the work into it. So there's the distinction in that. So there's no savant. There's no screenwriting savant where they're able to, to emulate, you know, how some these savants can, can play a masterpiece without having known music in terms of reading notes and things like that. I, I think there probably are. But I think they also work their butt off to polish their craft. But you never know. Anything's quite possible. Uh, the real problem is that most scripts suck. Seriously. And so those are hard numbers that realistically 98%, and some people say it's 99.9% of all scripts submitted are unreadable uh, for a variety of reasons. But if you don't have it all working together on the page, then the script doesn't work. And so how non-professional writers come up with ideas is really all across the board from, you know, watching some movie and wanting to basically just copy it to having like a fever dream that they wake up from in a cold sweat and like, my God, I got to write that. And maybe it's brilliant. And, and often they are. Uh, but almost always they have to have the craft to execute it properly. You know, maybe it's a story their grandfather told them about what happened to them in World War II or whatever, and it electrifies them and they want to turn it into a story. It might be just rolling ideas around in their head and two odd ideas clank together at one point and you were like, that's a weird story. You know, sometimes it's just colliding two different stories together. Uh, the story Alfred Bester tells, um, he wrote an amazing book of short stories called The Golden Man. And one of them is called Fondly Fahrenheit. And it's about a robot, a really high-end robot in the future that is the apex of robot invention. And it can literally carve marble like Michelangelo, like anything. And he hires it out to do jobs and it makes him a good living, but it gets overheated and something goes wrong and the robot kills the person it was with. So then he goes on the run with it. 
and puts it out for lesser jobs because they're looking for the robot that can carve like Michelangelo. So now he has it teaching Latin, you know, on another planet. And it overheats and kills somebody. So he keeps going on the run and keeps downgrading what he's hiring the robot for. And Bester talked about the creation of that idea. And the original idea was basically that, was that high-end robot malfunctions. And he said it just wasn't enough. It was, it was not a complex idea. It was too simple. And he shelved it. And then it, uh, a number of years later, he came across the description of a psychological malady in which one person thinks they're another person, where I genuinely think I'm you. And it's like a, it's like a mental illness. And I act like I'm you and I interact with you like I'm you. And he said, that's really interesting. Never heard of that before. And as he was like rolling it around in his hands, he reached up for the other idea and he, he did what he called collide them together to where this robot that was malfunctioning, part of the malfunction is that the robot thinks it's the master. And he said, now that had some juice as a story. And he made it into a fascinating short story called Fondly Fahrenheit. And it's amazing, you know, and it's just that kind of thing. And that's one of the things that we do in the two-year training program that I'm doing uh, is that each student has the, the core of the course, the 18-month center of the course, we're constantly working on about six to eight scripts at the same time when we range from one to the next. So we might be working on an action thriller, then the next day we're on a wacko comedy, and the next day it's a horror story. And the next day is like an adventure story. So we're changing gears constantly. They're learning different genres and using the same tools and techniques across a full spectrum of ideas. But they also have writing assignments, exercises to gain facility with the individual skills, uh, learning games and other things. And one of the things they have to do is to spit out a new story idea every day. And I emphasize, like, just spit it out. Don't get precious with it. Don't beat yourself up. And if they love the idea, they keep it in their private folder. If it's just some dumb idea they just spit up with and they're not attached to it, they put it into the group story bin so that anybody can work with it. We play with it. We'll take one and go, oh, let's create a dilemma for that. And if it begins to have legs, then that'll become one of the six to eight scripts that we build. Um, and in the process of them generating a story idea every day, you know, I'm saying to them, don't worry if it's dumb. Don't try to come up with genius stuff. Just keep spitting them out. Because in the course of this two years, you'll develop hundreds of ideas and you'll get in the habit of spitting them out. And I said, you know, you may find that you end up colliding your stupid bank robbery movie with your crazy time travel story. And like you collide those two together and all of a sudden you got a fun comedy out of two lame looking ideas. So that's part of what I try to bring to helping my students acquire better attack as storytellers and uh, just 
better facility creating stories and being able to recognize a lousy idea from a good one. Um, <clears throat> oh, and by the way, uh, the term attack as a storyteller uh, came from the writer Alfred Bester. He, um, he was a big influence in, on me as a writer. He wrote two phenomenal novels, science fiction novels in 1954 and 56. One was The Star is My Destination, the other one is The Demolished Man. And he's in many ways considered one of the absolute godfathers of science fiction. He was like the primary influence on all these people like Heinlein and um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, all these people like worshiped him and took off, you know, built upon the level of energy that he brought. He was a, he originally wrote radio plays for The Shadow. It was a, you know, a radio play, The Shadow Knows and comic book stories. And he said that kind of comic book writing taught him a lot about attack as a storyteller, entertainment value, the outrageousness of great storytelling. And just, he said, writing for a radio play, you got to get right on it. He said, start at white heat and build from there. So his, his, his attack as a storyteller has influenced me a lot and I try to um, inspire my students to that level of kind of ferocity, like, you know, it's, it's like be a wild animal, you know, you become a writer to be domesticated creature, to be told what to do and sit in a corner and salute, you know, it's like, don't let anybody tell you how to do this stuff. You know, it's just, it's just the, the whole society teaches people to conform and sit down and shut up and not, it, it, it doesn't say don't be original, but it diffuses in the, in the, in the sense of diffuse, like make it weaker, D-I-F-F-U-S-E, but also defuse, like to disarm a bomb to take away the fangs and claws of people. They, people are domesticated in society and we need wild animals. You know, we need people that are out there pushing the borders and seeing things in an entirely new way and refusing to accept the way things are. And that's so much the job of storytellers is to lead the way and inspire and show people new ways to do things. Um, but hang on, I'm so yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but I like what you're saying, but let me just play the devil's advocate for a second. If you don't know the rules, you can't break them kind of thing. So right. when when you say to, to, to push back and don't let someone tell you what to do, what if someone's this free sort of loose cannon, but they're going about story in the wrong way? And well, then, yeah, okay. there's lots of different... There's really an infinite number of approaches to any kind of story or anything. You know, like even just the way Quentin Tarantino with Pulp Fiction kind of flipped storytelling in a certain way that we hadn't seen done in movies much before and did it really well. But he still had really sophisticated structural technique because he had three different stories written into a coherent whole. So it wasn't a mess, it was a gem. 
So there's so many different ways to tackle it. And what I'm talking about is attack as a storyteller. There's a difference between wildly explosive creativity as a storyteller and substantial craft as a dramatist. So there are not so much rules for a dramatist, but a process of thinking, habits of mind, like how do you make something work for, for dramatic presentation? Real actors acting it out in front of an audience and it grabs the audience. It's all about the audience. If a, a movie playing to an empty theater has no power, it's just shadows on the wall. The power of the film resides in the response of the audience. So you want like wildly aggressive storytelling and rigorous technique as a dramatist. It's like, it's, it's, it's an interesting intersection of something that's organic and messy and something that's a hard science. Like medicine is a good example because medicine taking on like weird forms of cancer or something that keep evolving and it's not like they can control it. They're just bringing a rigorous science to grapple with this organic thing. And your story idea might be unlike anything anybody's ever seen. And yet you still have to make it work as a performance medium so that your craft as a dramatist can help you wrestle that story into a shape that makes it performable and gripping without sterilizing it. You're not trying to defang its energy. You're just trying to make it so that it actually works so that actors can really act it and it really grabs an audience. So it's, it's kind of like inherently contradictory or it may sound that way at first, but really it's just like make your stories as explosively creative as you possibly can and it's kind of like with the old Samsonite luggage where you put a whole bunch of stuff in it and then you kneel on it and just click the latches and then it's in there. If you can get that story into shape so that it's performable and grabs the audience, then it works. You know, even if it's something as out there as being John Malkovich, where you're like watching the movie going, whoa, look at that. And, you know, and it's brilliant and it's fun and it's different and it works. It grabs an audience, it's actable. And yet it's coming not even from left field, but like way out there. And it's, we need that kind of fresh energy and refusal to knuckle under to normal story patterns. And even the craft of the dramatist, the more craft you have. See, it comes down to principle and method. There are certain principles that underlie what tend to make the tools work. And there are certain methods that embody those principles. So like if, the, if you have certain principles that are active, there are certain methods that are created that turn that principle into an implement. And so that the particular tool you're using may not work exactly for the story you're trying to tell, but, it, but you can adapt the story because you're still serving the same principle. There just may be a different mechanism that can embody that principle. 
so that you the more craft you have as a dramatist the more you can adapt because you're still you're still achieving what you want to achieve you just find a different way to do it can you give me an example of a domesticated writer and i'm not talking about physically and at home staying home during covid mm -hmm. just just someone that is in a mindset of sort of the masses and versus this wild, unhinged, feral writer? Well, generally those are the writers of the scripts that don't work, of which there are millions of them over, you know, decades. Uh, so that even if you look, for instance, at a movie that seems very calm on the surface, like Ordinary People, it won Best Picture and a bunch of other Oscars, I think in 80 or 81, something around there. It's almost just a parlor drama, like people sitting around a living room arguing. But there's so much intensity and so much ferocity and so much attack, it really goes right for the jugular vein. It's not making weak choices. It's making very strong choices and really making us take a good hard look at the ugly or dysfunctional parts of ourselves so that it has a tremendous attack, a lot of magnitude, a lot of depth. So, and, and that's like what I'm talking about when I say domesticated, I just mean like making small safe choices where, you know, you're reading the script and you like the, you like the pitch and then you read the script and it's like, the pitch sounded so promising and they just sat back and you know, phoned it in. Look at like at this juncture, they could have made so many better choices, but they made a weak one. And then it just keeps, it's like, you know, just a lack of attack. You had talked about attention versus intention. So that has to do with <clears throat> what um, in what Anders Ericsson in his book Peak and in his whole career talks about as deliberate practice. And that is that say that you're a you're in training to be an Olympic ski racer and it's a series of individual skills that each of which has to be better than anybody in the world if you're going to win. You, like every move you make so that your coach is showing you video of like as a skier I know that you to ski right you're doing six things at the same time you have to do them all at once and then you're really good but you have to learn each one in isolation and then combine them so that your coach would be saying you're leaning a little too forward there and you're not popping on your when you when you change you know and they'll and they'll isolate certain things that they need to improve upon. Like you keep, you keep not straightening your knee, so they might give them exercise and have them do it a lot. <clears throat> For instance, like one of my friends who was a, uh, played minor league hockey, the junior B they call it, his coach would show them how to do it and then say, go do that 50,000 times and then come back. It's that type of thing, a deliberate practice where your ski coach would say, you keep not extending your elbow all the way. You gotta overcome that. So every day you'll do that 
maybe a thousand times before you do anything else. And instead of going, I hate this, you, you, you do it with full attention and full intention so that you're really paying attention to it and you're intending to like, I'm going to master this. And yeah, it's boring and everything else, but you're, you stay focused and that makes your brain build the neural network stronger and better. Whereas if you're not focused and don't have strong intention, then you don't really get the, the cumulative benefit in the brain structure that seats it as a deeply habitual. So you, once you've done that the whole season, when you get into the race, then every time you take a turn, you never miss that elbow lock so that it becomes built in. And that's what Erickson called deliberate practice. And what they said was that they found that you don't want to give the people you're training drills, but give them short addictive games. They're literally doing the exact same thing, but you make an addictive game out of it so that they can stay focused on it better. What do you think of writers who don't need to outline to write a great story? Well, there's so many different approaches. Uh, I mean, the bottom line is either the story they're writing works or it doesn't. If it doesn't work and they don't outline, then it may be something that they want to add to their repertoire. If it does work, then whatever they've created as their process, it works. If the story, if people love the story, then whatever they do works. It's just one approach to the process of creating, developing, and constructing a story. Uh, for me, it's a deep habit to do that because one of the central problems for script writers is that dramatic writing is an extremely stripped down literary form. It demands complete economy, mostly because it's a performance medium. <clears throat> and the only thing that actually, it's like an iceberg where there's a bunch of parts of the story that are, you know, part of the mechanics of the story, but the part that the audience actually sees on stage or on screen is just a sequence of events that happens. Like the guy walks into the room to get his valuable thing from out of hiding. And there's somebody watching from the window or behind the curtain with a knife. And it's just a sequence of events where the person gets the thing out of hiding, then the other person comes out and tries to take it from them. So it's a highly specific set of incidents. And there isn't room for anything else in that particular scene. And this is called separating the necessary from the unnecessary. So that the performance, generally it won't, it won't make it to performance if it's bogged down with the unnecessary because the script doesn't read well. But people will often put, will allow the unnecessary to creep into the script from all different directions. And the outlining process, the way I use it and the way I train in it, is that you have to get the big building blocks of your story working first because if the if the major girders and beams if the big bones of your story don't work dramatically 
then nothing else you add to it is going to matter. The details don't matter. It's like some writers will have a beautifully written scene in a script that doesn't work. It doesn't amount to anything. It's like having an ornately finished room in a house that's falling over. You've got gold leaf and oak and marble and everything else, but the house is literally tipping over. So if you've you got to get the big structure right, and that's the most basic component of an outline. Once you get that working, then you layer in a little more detail. So if you have a sequence of events that constitutes the spine of your story, and those are just the big building blocks of your story with no detail, and you link those up and you take a look at it and go, oh, that's better than I thought it would be, or oh, I could see how I thought I had a problem in act two, and I can see that clearly now that I've got the major building blocks, and then you improve on that, and then look at it again and go, yeah, now that works. Then you can break that up into acts and develop a little more detail for act one. So you gradually layer in a little more detail as it becomes necessary, but layering on only that which is necessary. Then you do act two and act three. Then you take act one and break it down into sequences. There's two to five sequences in an act and two to five scenes in a sequence. So you break the opening act down into, say, three or four sequences. You take the first sequence and you've already got a chain of events that you've already figured out from when you figured out the act. And then you expand upon that a little more. It becomes necessary to think it through in a little more detail. So you flesh out your outline a little bit more. And then you do it for the next sequence and you flesh that out. And it's flesh out, not flush out, like putting flesh on, on bones. <clears throat> and you do that for all the sequences. You develop a little more detail. So now you've got an outline that has a reasonable amount of detail to it. And this sequence serves, where is it, is tight and dramatic in and of itself, when the audience watched that sequence, they're on the edge of their seat, it's compelling. That sequence serves its function of what the act is intended to do. The act, this unit serves this unit. This is part of this and contributes toward what the act is trying to do. The act serves the whole because it does its part of the mechanism that helps make the whole story work. So. It's a unit inside of a unit inside of a unit. So then you take the opening sequence and you divide it down into scenes. And you, so if like this, if this is your opening sequence and there's a chain of events that constitute that sequence, you're gonna say, okay, this part of it is the opening scene. So there's still that chain of events that you'd already figured out that are, constitute that scene. Now you're going to take those events and think it through in a little more detail. You expand upon it a little more. And now you've got final detail. So you have a highly detailed outline, and then you actually write that scene. Then you think through the next scene and expand upon the detail. But you're still rigorously excluding the unnecessary and only layering in that which is necessary to the sequence of events. It's all about the forward progression of events. And that has to do, that's particular to 
dramatic writing. In a novel, you really have a lot more leeway and flow, and but but in a, in something that's being staged, you have to present a clear forward progression, and you and you want that progression to move well and not veer off into unrelated territory, or you don't want it to have a dead spot that's flat dramatically, so you lose the audience. The the basically. Continuous, coherent, compelling dramatic action is the name of the game. And dramatic action is not car chases and shootouts. It's not mere action. It's a state of action that you put the audience in. It's all about getting the audience on the edge of their seat and keeping them there. They're in a state of action, the audience. So continuous, coherent, compelling dramatic action. The word compelling is actually redundant because dramatic action is by definition compelling but it just helps people understand it better. So if it's, you always want to have dramatic action, you don't want to ever revert to mere story. You don't want to have parts of your script go flat dramatically where it's mere information. You want it to always be actable and compelling. So this, the scene still is A causes B, which causes C, which causes D and so on. It moves, it has a good progression of forward action with nothing, it's, it's only that which is gonna be on stage or on screen with nothing else. It's, it's, you continuously strip away the unnecessary and the unnecessary kills scripts. The unnecessary, you have overwritten dialogue, overwritten descriptions, overwritten scenes, scenes that shouldn't be there, sequences that shouldn't be there, bloated sequences. Sometimes you have a whole act that's unnecessary and what Price said was, for that matter, your entire script may be unnecessary, which is true way more often than it should be. Those 98% of scripts that don't work are unnecessary. They do not work. They, they're landfill. They, they, they can't do anything with them. So if you, if you are rigorously excluding the unnecessary from the big bones of the story to each act, to each sequence and each scene, then you building the script section by section and including only that which is necessary to the forward action of the story. And the, the unnecessary is rigorously excluded at all times, then your working draft consists of only that which is necessary. Every scene is tight and dramatic the first three scenes, each of which is tight and dramatic, make up the opening sequence, which is in and of itself tight and dramatic. Those four sequences, each of which are tight and dramatic, make up the opening act, which in and of itself is tight and dramatic. And each of the acts, which are tight and dramatic, make up the overall story, which is in and of itself tight and dramatic. So the working draft that you end up with is going to be very much in the ballpark. It's gonna be lean and mean. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't need work. It generally needs a lot of work, but it's not a bloated mess. It's a tight thing that's highly functional and you can, it's basically the whole premise behind what I teach is that, and this came straight from Price, that you can, <clears throat> that if you properly engineer your script before you write it, then it will, uh, save most of the, you'll, you can use the same amount of energy to properly engineer your script before you write it as you would put into 25 rewrites. So 
it's better to structure it properly and then write it and then build from there. And storytelling is not always so hard to do, but drama dramatizing a story is very tricky. What if a writer says, though, these are necessary parts to my story, but outside eyes say, no, this is unnecessary, unnecessary, takes me out of it. What is missing from this writer that they think that their necessary scenes or dialogue is, is actually unnecessary? Well, <clears throat> well, first of all, either they're right or they're not. Um, either the script works and people want to make it or it doesn't. If a professional evaluates the script and says, I'm not going to make this, then it doesn't work in that instance. Now, the next professional they meet might say, this is brilliant. I love it. So it's, you know, it's, it's flexible in many ways, but it's, um, it has to do a lot with just the craft of a dramatist of that writer, because they may perceive that something is necessary to the telling of the story when actually it only bogs it down or kills it. Um, and that happens a lot if they're overly attached to the story and, you know, how much craft they have. But it's really... The, the showrunner I was talking to, she said that she sees so many scripts that will not work for their, for their show. And this is a top, this is one of the top network shows in the world. And she's the showrunner. She's a showrunner on it. She says, she said two things. What they write either is producible, our star will agree to do it and it will work or it won't and we're not making it because it's not what we make. Um, she said that she can tell if somebody can write really within the first sentence. You know, a lot of people say the first five pages, the first page. She says, yes, first five pages, all that. But she said, I can tell if they can write or not in the first sentence. And what often happens is if she says to this writer, this script does not work, and the writer says, well, that's just your subjective opinion. She's like, they say that to me all the time, but they're not right. It either works or it doesn't. It's not my subjective opinion. It's my professional expertise that I look at their script for this show, and it does not work. And it's not subjective. So there's, there's professional skill sets, and then there's everybody else's opinion about what they think is professional writing. And really, it's either works or it doesn't. So people's attachment to things that they perceive are necessary is often mistaken from either an emotional attachment to the material or 
a mistaken sense of craft or, you know, just they think they think it helps make the script work when actually it's a significant weakness in the material. So they don't know what they don't know. In yes, terms. or, <laughs> yeah, or they don't know enough and they stick to their guns thinking they've got the goods when like this showrunner would not even show it to the star of the show. Because, you know, it's like, it has to be this particular thing to go into our production slate. And it's either that or it's not. It's we write a certain type of show and it's, and so the writer telling them, look, it'll work, it's fresh, it's creative. It's like, that doesn't matter. It's not what we produce. So it has to do with what the professional decision makers are looking for and what in their experience ruins the, the script versus the opinion of the writer. And this showrunner said, it's not like these are like people that never wrote anything. These are repped writers that are supposed to be professional writers and they're not even in the ballpark. So it was a huge discrepancy between what people think works and what the high level decision makers will let get past their gate to get into production. Could it be that they weren't properly told the exact nature of what they're looking for? I mean, I'm just playing the devil's advocate. No, because here, right? the show's been on for years and it's a it's a known entity. It's like, how could you not know what we produce here? Um, but, you know, is there so many reasons why people's writing don't work from they're a poor storyteller, they don't have craft as a dramatist, or it's just not right for the entity they're pitching it to. Their stuff might be astonishingly brilliant, but it's just not right for this show. So there's, it's, you can't really, it's not black and white at all. There's so many different angles and approaches and, you know, somebody might show up in town tomorrow with the script, the likes of which no one's ever seen and it makes more money than anything ever done and wins every award. And people are like, what the hell was that? We didn't, we'd never seen anything like it. We didn't think it would work and it's brilliant. You know, you never, it's, anything can go, you know, but there's also rules that work in certain ways for what people are looking for. So there are no rules from one point of view and there are real rules from another point of view. And all that's real. If you invent an entirely new type of car, it still has to fit on the damn road, fit in a garage, even if it runs on goldfish. You know, it's like, it's still gotta fit certain aspects of the infrastructure that's out there. <clears throat> right. So you can know music, you can be Roger Daltrey and still follow the right pitch and, and cadence and all that. I, I, don't, not, I don't know much about music, but you can still be unhinged and wild. And now oh, yeah. you have Tommy 
and now you have this like wild sort of creature and this is what you're talking about with writing that you want to see someone that's that's got fangs and and claws and yeah even like with ordinary people there's not a car chase or a gunfight anywhere within 10,000 miles of that script but it's so compelling it's absolutely riveting and it's shocking it's powerful so it's more about not blowing more stuff up but going deeper and not going down the same rut that everybody else is going down you know it's just don't settle for less be a dynamic storyteller and you know don't don't make weak predictable choices that kind of thing is what i'm talking about okay I think nobody, I'm you get that at home for free people go to the movies to see something fresh and dynamic and world changing they want the people that go to the movies are hoping that your movie will change the way they think for the rest of their life people want transformation they're starving for it they open up their brain and go do something anything they want a real experience they want you to knock their socks off they don't want to see the same warmed over murder mystery that they can see coming 30 miles away and know who did it you know 10 minutes into the movie it's like I don't have this two hours to watch crap. I need something powerful. I have a story idea, and I'm hoping that we can see ways to make it more wild and 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 really sort of shake things up from um, what I have. Okay. Um, I'm trying to shorten it down, but my character, the protagonist, is a male in his 30s. We'll call him Derek, and he's always been a techie. He majored in computer science. He had a Commodore 64. He's always been very heady. And flash forward many years later, he gets a very lucrative job at a Fortune 500 company where he's in, uh, he's in charge of the sort of IT department and their security. And it's a dream job, but he's totally bored. There's, there's nothing, he knows exactly what his life is and he's completely bored. He becomes a workaholic. He doesn't really meet any romantic partners until one day he goes to a coffee shop and a very attractive young woman asks for help with her computer. Well, it turns out, unbeknownst to him, he's been targeted by a rival company and they want to use her to seduce him so that they can get into the company's mainframe hmm. and find out trade secrets. So uh, her name is Skylar. What a perfect name for, for that character. And at first, when he realizes he's being used, he's upset, and then he realizes he doesn't care anymore. And he's willing because his life really wasn't what he wanted and he's fallen in love with this woman and he knows uh, that he's being manipulated and he doesn't care. So um, he feels that he can change Skylar and give her a better life and that, uh, anyway, help me out here. How can I make this story better, um, give it more sort of a, a wow factor, really shock people with it? Well, it's not just mere shock value. It's the thing that I would focus on first is, um, what's his name again? Derek. Derek um, <clears throat> would be a, a good strong dilemma for Derek, being trapped between two equally unacceptable alternatives. 
Um, a good example of that would be in the movie Training Day, where the Ethan Hawke character, Jake, is caught in a good strong dilemma between his, his ambition to make it onto the Denzel Washington character's under, undercover narcotics squad, his ambition, he's very ambitious, and his moral compass. Because he's willing to do anything to make that squad because he wants to make detective and get his own division, you know, become a high-ranking cop. And his ambition is his weakness. So he's overly ambitious, and yet he has a strong moral compass too. So as Alonzo drags him deeper and deeper into the basically the trap that Alonzo has set for him, his, his ambitions are being realized. He's moving forward aggressively and seeing a path, but that also includes corruption and questionable activities. So his moral compass is rebelling. So he can't let go of his ambition. Nothing will make him let go of his ambition, but he can't let go of his moral compass either. And they're really equally strong. So that's an example of a good, strong dilemma. So I would, the first thing I would focus on is a potential dilemma for Derek, because there's either a dilemma inherent in the story idea that you've pitched, or there isn't. If it's there, then I want to isolate it and then amplify it to maximize its strength. If it's not there, I would experiment with creating one. And, and I'm not trying to force a dilemma onto it because the story is the most important thing. But a good, strong dilemma can amplify the dramatic power of a story. And so I look at the possibility of creating one without forcing it or bending the story out of shape. <clears throat> In this one, it seems like there is a dilemma kind of sitting on the surface. In other words, I'm not having to go, is there one in there? I can see it right there because it's unacceptable to go along with the manipulation. And generally the dilemma kicks in somewhere around the end, around the end of act one. You have to like live with the character for a while, get to know them, get to care about the lead, pro the protagonist. And for the story to develop, um, to the point where somewhere around the end of act one, the protagonist finds him or herself caught in a dilemma of magnitude. Magnitude means significance to an audience. Does it hit them where they live? Does it grab them? Is it important? Like you could have a dilemma that it's unacceptable to wash the car. It's equally unacceptable to mow the lawn. That is in fact a dilemma, but it's not going to grab an audience. It doesn't have magnitude. So, so if after a whole act one, he's noticing that he's the subject of a manipulation and he's like, I'm not going to allow myself to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fall for this. I'm not going down that road. And yet we're looking for something that's equally unacceptable that like it's unacceptable to let go of this kind of wild card that has disrupted his predictable career trajectory 
which reminds me of the story of the musician Sting of the police. He was the headmaster of a girls' school in England, and he said at one point he had a, a flash where he could see the whole rest of his life in this really predictable path, and he was like, like, whoa, I am not doing that. Like, let me out of here. And he's, he's like, you know, he's like, I like music. I'm, I'm going to chase that hard. So th there's something similar in Derek going, I don't like the trap that she's leading me into, but I do like the trap she's leading me into. And so, there is a, that's why I'm saying I could see a dilemma sitting on the surface. There is a dilemma inherent in the material, which then, now that we have isolated the, the two halves of the dilemma, then the next step that I would do would be to experiment with amplifying each of those halves. Um, so, if I'm him, and, and one way I do it is I, I put myself in Derek's shoes. So if I'm Derek, and not only all my training in terms of security and IT and lockdown and watching the company's back and keeping predators out and knowing that they're out there, trade secrets and all that kind of stuff, <clears throat> that... I'm naturally not only a guard dog, but an attack dog. Um, so, like, it's unacceptable to let anybody outsmart me in this stuff because I'm protecting my master and I'll, I'll take a bullet for them. You know, it's the attack dog, the Secret Service, all that stuff is kind of like wired into him. And there's a professional... ferocity that like nobody's getting around me. I'm the goalie. Nobody's scoring on me. <clears throat> and I don't care if I dislocate my arm and I never play again. They're not putting that puck in that net. The more that that aspect of his personality can be amplified, the more what we're doing is we're, we're jacking up that side of the dilemma by playing what if with what are the things that, it's like putting a jack under it and jacking it up a little. And at first it'll go right up and then it'll be like, you can still get one more click out of it. And like, what's the most intense you can make it? And, and there's a variety of factors that would inform that and go into that. Um, one of the things you see often is a past failure um, where he's not gonna let it happen again or and maybe that goes hand in glove with a character defect on himself or, but it's really just like, like my dog will die to keep you from hurting my kids, that kind of thing. You are not getting past that watchdog. So amplifying that. And then, and, and you can see how that, it's not that hard to beef that up to make him a ferocious guard dog. 
and 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 yet because he's also like bored um dead-ended and potentially also has that kind of revelation that sting had of like oh my god i can see the whole rest of my life and i'd really rather shoot myself than go down that path so there's something that awakens a rebellious streak in him, an adventurous streak, um, a kink, you know, just a fascinating fascination with this young woman. And it's almost like an opportunity presents itself to break out of jail. So <clears throat> it's kind of a wild streak in this character. It's almost like a tiger that's been raised in a zoo and is domesticated in a lot of ways, get its food delivered to it, all that stuff, but some of its wild instincts arise and it has a profound hunger to pursue that. And, and the thing to also bear in mind that as I'm playing with this, this is wildly unformed in my mind. <clears throat> so that I'm literally sitting here with a couple things in my hand and nothing else. Uh, so I can see how to amplify that part of him that is no way you're getting around me over my dead body. But then what I'm also looking at, and I got that, that's not going away. That's not so hard. We can probably complicate that as the story progresses or we'll stumble over ways that are obvious that we haven't noticed yet to make that even stronger. But that's not complicated from one point of view. This is an interesting puzzle to make this side of the dilemma more unacceptable, more powerful, more dynamic. And so all the reasons why he can't let go of the opportunity that she presents, including her, he's just fascinated with her as a possible mate, even if he's already married or maybe his marriage is dead end, who knows that these are all things to play with as you play what if with the dilemma. But that part of him, you know, for instance, like a crazy what if, like what if, like in Lethal Weapon, he goes home and puts a gun to his mouth and is thinking about suicide. Like he's so dead end in this job and hates it that maybe he's attempted suicide before and nobody ever knew. I don't know. Maybe he just plays with a rifle, uh, with a handgun at home. That would complicate. It gives him more of a flaw, which you tend to want to have, and complicates his approach 
to the riddle that she presents for him internally. Um, I think that clearly if he's great at his job, that he has several different options. Like he could just shut her out and walk away, and there, but then there's no dilemma, there's no story, but that's one of the options. Once he begins to notice what she's up to, he's like, I'm out of here. You know, screw you. I'm, why, how, how, why would you do this to me? And you're not my friend and we're not going down this road. And he just pulls the plug and it's done. Maybe they got into a little bit of something and he just covers it back up or changes something and what they got didn't amount to anything and he just drops the firewall on them. But what you're suggesting is quite a bit different than that, is that, that that part of him which is starving for some fresh air can't let go of this opportunity and won't. And even if it ends up that he ultimately goes over to the dark side and completely betrays his company and that gets him out of his trap. You know, it's like the bear chewing its leg off to get out of a leg hold trap. That may be one of his options, or that may be... See, there's one thing to be trapped in a good, strong dilemma, and that generally kicks in around the end of Act One after we've gotten to know the character and get the story developed to a point. That dilemma builds an intensity all throughout Act Two, until around the end of Act Two, it comes to a critical juncture where it comes to the make or break point because with Dilemma, you really can't choose either way. Like Jake in Training Day cannot let go of his ambition and cannot let go of his moral compass. <clears throat> and the crisis in Training Day comes when Alonzo tries to have him killed by the Hillside Gang, the Latino gang in that house up on the hill. And they're about to blow his brains out in the bathtub. I'm not going to say anything more about the story because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But that's partway through it. I'm not going to talk about the ending at all. But <clears throat> that crisis forces a decision and action about the dilemma. So that the crisis demands an immediate decision and action about the dilemma that the protagonist is still stuck in and the protagonist once the dilemma comes to this critical juncture the crisis which is out around the three quarters point in the story the protagonist has to make some kind of decision and take some kind of action that breaks the paralysis of the dilemma so they're now in a fight to the finish to try to resolve the dilemma so as I'm wrestling with Derek's dilemma and looking at amplifying it, making it more powerful, more riveting to the audience, and part of that is playing crazy what if. That's what I'm talking about, like don't settle for the easy choices. How far can you take it? How much can you make this protagonist scream because of this dilemma? The more impossible it is for them, the more the audience comes up on the edge of their seat. 
because this is our hero in this story and they're caught in a bad situation. And if that dilemma is universal, which you tend to want to do, then the audience is sitting there going, I understand this dilemma because I'm caught in something like this. You know, of like a duty versus honor dilemma or whatever. That may not be, I, that's not necessarily, an, that's probably not a good description of this particular dilemma. But let, let me, let me, so let me retract and articulate his dilemma with that level of simplicity. So duty and honor is definitely there. No way they're getting around me. But no way am I letting go of this whacked out left-handed opportunity that blindsided me and reawakened my starvation for adventure and freedom and unpredictability. So really it's a security versus adventure dilemma, <clears throat> which is very universal. Like no way am I letting go of my security, but there's no way I'm letting go of my adventure. It's like it sucks being a bank teller, but it sucks trying to make it as a painter living on peanut butter sandwiches. I can't let go of the security, but I can't let go of my need for adventure. So I, I think that's a, an accurate representation at first glance of Derek's dilemma. So his, and I would say that he has a part of his personality makeup is a deep seated need for security and predictability and to be a good watchdog. But there's also the contradictory part of his personality that's starving for adventure and fresh air and to get out, get out of that cubicle and start really living life. So not only does Skylar and her masters present an unexpected opportunity, but that the deeper Derek gets into, as you progress through act two, and this dilemma gets more and more intense as things keep ratcheting up, that it becomes more acceptable to let them get around him, but it's also more acceptable, more unacceptable to let go of this dynamic once in a lifetime opportunity. And, you know, and some of that would probably have to do with the nature of the business that, business that he's protecting and the intentions of the uh, predator who's operating Skylar. And, and, you know, those are things to play with. For instance, is the company that Derek works for, maybe the more Derek is exposed to what Skylar is talking about and probably what her boss is telling her to say, maybe Derek begins to perceive that the company he's vigilantly protecting is actually either a criminal operation or is doing something morally reprehensible that makes this side stronger, but maybe what they're going to do with it is 
highly questionable or criminal or whatever. So the need to protect. So there's, there's story possibilities that can go in wildly different directions. Um, and, you know, so much of that has to do with your intention as a storyteller, where you want to steer the story versus listening to the story. Like, it basically comes down to <clears throat> what the tools that you're using as a dramatist suggest in terms of story possibilities and dramatizing the material so that it stays actable and gripping to an audience. There's like, there's like the demands of the story and the demands of the tools. And you want to really listen to both of them. The tools will suggest certain things. The story will suggest certain things. And you want to really factor them both in. Like the, the, um, the technique, the techniques of the various tools involved may suggest that you steer the story in this direction, but your intention as a storyteller or as the story takes on a life of its own, it may really want to go in this direction and you want to really be responsive to that. The story is the most important thing. The tools are mere technique that can help you shape the story to make it work dramatically. So it's a give and take between what the story, the energy that the story brings to the table and your intentions for what the story brings versus the technique that you bring to the table. So it's kind of like a, a, a synthesis of the two. And so, you know, as I work with making the dilemma more and more intense <clears throat> and riveting and entertaining or compelling, you know, it may be a brutal thriller, so it's not like an action comedy at all. So entertainment value is absolutely like, how's this gonna turn out? I can't look away. Somebody's gonna die here. You know, it can be brutally intense and really riveting. So it's not like entertainment value and like, ha ha, funny, but it's just like, they couldn't pay you to, to leave the theater before it ends. Um, so that as I build that dilemma toward the, the critical juncture around the end of act two, when that dilemma becomes a crisis and forces an immediate decision and action about that dilemma, now that it's gone critical, it's like a gun to the head that demands, you don't, you don't get to contemplate your dilemma from a distance anymore, going, what am I gonna do when it goes critical? Now it has gone critical and it's like the gun is to the head and you got to make a decision right now and take an action. And you're like, I can't make a decision. So that's, it's, it's riveting. But as I'm amplifying the dilemma, what I'm looking at is the point on the horizon that it's all going to converge toward at the two thirds point around the end of act two, that what does, not what does, 
what is shaping up as the potential crisis as I build the dilemma. In other words, there could be a whole lot of factors that go into constituting the crisis, which informs the trajectory of the dilemma. Because often a crisis is all the worst possible stuff happening at the worst possible moment. And sometimes the crisis can involve that you're, it's not like all catastrophic failure all at the same time, which is definitely part of a crisis where everything's caving in on you at the worst possible moment. But it can also be like that you're right on the edge of succeeding right as it all goes to hell. You're like, I'm an inch away from pulling this off. I had a way out. I, I can do this. And it all cascades into failure. So it's not all just, it's all going wrong, but part of it is that it's all going right. And this is the worst possible thing at the worst possible moment. So it's a mixture of the two. And it's, so as I build the dilemma, the possibilities for the crisis inform the choices that I'm making because it's like, how can I make this as gripping as possible as it gets denser and more complex and more compelling? <clears throat> and that's where, you know, like what I'm talking about, about don't make sedate choices. You know, it's about entertainment value. About, it's about outrageousness. And that doesn't mean just mere wacky stuff or blowing more things up. But it's like, as he wrestles with his dilemma as things get more and more intense, she, I would think, is perhaps flowering as a person in their relationship, that she's like the best thing that ever happened to him. But she may also be the worst thing that's ever happened to him, like she's creating him, she's turning him into a new person, but she's also destroying him so that he can't hang on and he can't let go. And she's like wildly the love of his life. But he still can't jump ship because he's going to lose his life, maybe in the process of making his life. So it's an aggressive experimentation with <clears throat> pure storytelling and pure technique and synthesizing the two where the technique suggests ramping up the intensity more and more and more until it's at the like the, it's like at a point of the engine is screaming and about to vibrate to pieces. And then everything really goes wrong at that, like at the worst possible moment, a whole other monkey wrench gets thrown into the thing. So it's all like playing with options. Um, is that helpful? Yeah, I love okay. it. I love it. And I'm wondering, is there something and like... And that's just dilemma. That's just uh -huh. one part of one of the seven tools. But that's where I go first. Right. And, uh, and I'm wondering what, where could like a meteor come from another plant and just like just destroy all expectations? Because we figure there's probably going to be two outcomes, one of two. Either he's able to quote unquote save her and give her this good life maybe she never had and that's why she would do such a thing and she needed the money and she got in with some bad people or 
um, he's going to, he has such a strong moral compass that he's going to say, sorry, I can't do this. I, I Not only am I going to ruin my career, but my parents and all my high school friends and college friends, they're never going to see me the same, and I'm going to end up in the papers. And so, but then what could be a third thing that could just come from nowhere that we don't see? Because right. those seem like two likely outcomes. Well, there's two avenues to explore in that question, one of which has to do with um, informal logic. They talk about dilemma as being caught on the horns of a dilemma, two equally unacceptable alternatives. Either one will gore you. You can't, you can't go either way. And they talk about different ways to resolve a dilemma. One is that you can pick one of the horns or the other. You can pick one of the unacceptable alternatives and go, all the way, become a revolutionary with her, destroy the company that he was in, or throw her to the, become a more rigorous guardian of the, he could, he could go, he could pick one of those two unacceptable alternatives and go all the way with it and resolve his dilemma. Or by thinking on his feet, he could come up with a radically third alternative in which he's not choosing either one of the things that he was trapped in. It's like somebody saying, you gotta go through that door or you gotta go through that door. And by thinking on your feet, you get a chainsaw and cut a third door and go out that way. It's about, a, by thinking on your feet, you come up with a creative resolution. They call it the third path in the science of dilemma. And so often in a story like this, the protagonist does find a third way out. Um, there's a great example of that in The Firm. But let me just say, spoiler, spoiler alert, and if you, don't, if you haven't seen The Firm, which is a phenomenal movie, hit pause, fast forward a little bit, because it's a great example, but I don't want to ruin the movie for people either. So in, in The Firm, Tom Cruise is in this high paying law firm and he finds out it's actually owned by the mafia and he gets put in a good strong dilemma by Ed Harris, this aggressive FBI agent who says, you have to um, bring us proof that they are involved in a criminal enterprise or we are gonna ruin your life. And if he brings proof, then he violates his oath as a lawyer, if he does what the FBI wants, he'll be permanently disbarred because he divulged client privileged information. But if he doesn't do what they're saying, they'll ruin his life. It's something like that. I, I don't know if I'm saying it exactly right, but it's very much in the ballpark. He finds a creative third way out in that when he, when one of the people he's working with mentions that they have been systematically overbilling him, which they're doing to everybody and they make a lot of money on that and it's criminal. The guy that he's, the client that he's talking to says, what they don't realize is when they put a stamp on this, that became a federal crime. And Tom Cruise lies light up and he's like, yes, and each single act is, is punishable by, you know, $10,000 fine and 10 years and each one of those. And, and he goes, I just studied that for the bar exam. And he's like, and so what he does, he, he does not do what the FBI demands of him, but he does not go down with this criminal law firm either, is that he gives the FBI proof of them 
systematically overbilling the clients through the mail, each of which is a federal crime. And it wasn't this huge bust that the FBI wanted, but a lot of little busts that have real teeth and add up to a lot of prison time, but it's a lot of hard work for the FBI. But he gave them by the letter of the law what they were demanding without violating attorney-client privilege. So he skated between these two equally unacceptable alternatives by coming up with a radical third alternative that, result, that, that conclusively resolved his dilemma and made for a satisfying ending to the movie. And so that would be the type of thing that could work very well in this type of story. So that, for instance, if, for instance, there were some questionable activities that his, the organization that he's guarding is involved with, and the predator wants to get at that, it's kind of like the predator is putting him in an all or nothing position, but he finds a way to maybe undo some of the questionable activities that his, the organization that he's guarding is involved with without violating them, without exposing their hard drive. It merely opens up to public scrutiny one thing that they're doing that they really shouldn't be doing doesn't and, and allows the predator to make that public without hurting the company. So he kind of skates between the trap that he's in and maybe takes the girl with him as a mate, something like that, right. in which he finds a creative third way out of the impossible situation that he was stuck in. I like that. So he's this, that's the door that he's, that yes. he's built. Right, okay. By thinking on his feet, he came up with a creative third resolution possibility where there used to be only two. Because maybe this, this sort of, um, this, this act of espionage that they want him to do is because maybe they've compiled information on their customer base and they really shouldn't have kept that and not disclosed or something. So what if he somehow, I don't know, turns it around so that, that that's no longer there or then the customers are notified. Every, so, somehow it's like there's a resolution. Right. I, I don't know how that would be done. It should also be right. something of magnitude. Okay. If, it's, if it's a minor offense, then the audience is going to go, so what? Who cares? So that's where the magnitude, where you, it gets up to a level of like, oh, that's important. I care about that. Right. But that's just a factor. You yeah. know, that's something to factor in as you build that half of the dilemma. And it's informed by if the, if the predator who's operating the young woman is showing him things that are questionable about the organization he's guarding, then he's like, yeah, you're right. They are, you know, but you just wanted to come above a certain threshold of questionability. Right. So don't but that's take all the, the right. particulars mm -hmm. of the story. Sure. So so forge the third path. It sounds like don't take the right. Don't take the left. Try to dig well, a that's new just path. In the one, that's just one possible resolution for this type of story. Well, it would probably be too predictable, don't you think? If if I chose one or the other. If I chose it where somehow he turned these people in and was able to to still keep his job and then he marries her and they live happily ever after in the suburbs. And, and I mean, that's 
I don't know if that's really going to work. Um, or if he absconds with her to the Cayman Islands and then he's hiding for the rest of his life, that, that's not going to work either. So Right. Or, you know, he, he escapes the substantial trap that the predator laid for him and escapes the trap of his um, rut, his career, predictable career rut, and potentially some criminality that, his or, that the organization he's guarding was involved in, so that he kind of outsmarts his boss and outsmarts the predator and maybe runs away with the girl and they hitchhike around the world. I mean, like he completely drops out of the whole arena he was in. You know, it's just part of a creative, a, a possible creative solution to the complex trap that he was stuck in. And he becomes a consultant that does like white hat pen testing type stuff. Or he may and never look at a computer again. They may <laughs> steal a sailboat and sail off, you know, with $100,000 in cash in the hold. And that's all they have. But it's he's right. completely free from everything. Right. There's, you know, there's so many ways you can go with the story ending. But you want it to impact the audience powerfully and make them feel different than the way they came into the theater. You know, they want to be transformed, even transfigured, even like to the point where they never think the same way again for the rest of their life. It like permanently changes how their brain is wired. That's what people hope for in a great story, that it completely changes how you see the world forever. Most stories don't do that, but the best ones can do that. And it's fun to aspire to. What do you believe is one of the most powerful plot construction tools currently in the film industry? The one that I teach is, uh, it's a three-step process called sequence proposition plot that was invented by William Thompson Price, but was um, sat undiscovered in his book until I found it. Um, I've taught that to uh, development executives at all the Hollywood studios, and they consistently say it's the most advanced development tool in the film industry. It's really powerful, and it's unlike anything that's out there. And it's a very sophisticated tool for both plot construction and story development. <clears throat> it... Um, works with reverse cause and effect and uh, structuring compelling conflict. So that <clears throat> it's, as I was saying before, with making the overall story work first and then making each act work in each sequence and each scene, it's, it's used for that because the first, the first step, sequence, is reverse cause and effect. It's the sequence of cause and effect that constitute the spine of the story, the forward progression of the story. So that <clears throat> using reverse cause and effect, you have to have the mechanics of the story sketched out first. You can't do plot construction until you have a story reasonably well figured out. 
um, <clears throat> so that with reverse cause and effect, you start at the ending and work backwards so that you're, you're looking at the ending and you're chaining back from each effect to its cause. So you look at the ending and say, okay, well, what would be the immediate cause of that ending? And you find the cause of that. And then you say, okay, what would be the immediate cause of that and the cause of that and so on. And so that, say it's a, it's a, um, <clears throat> say it's a story about a, uh, someone who's being muscled by a mafia don. No, someone who's being muscled by a corrupt cop. And the corrupt cop puts him in a good, strong dilemma, and there's no way out, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And this character finally figures a way out, and that he makes a deal with a mafia don to set up this corrupt cop because the mafia don wants to take out this corrupt cop. So the character sets a trap so that the crooked cop shows up to like rob him at the, at the key point and the mafia don swoops in and takes him out. So the ending would be that the guy is free from the trap he was caught in before. You'd say, well, what would cause him to be free? It's that the mafia don snatches the crooked cop and disappears him. The cause of that would be that the crooked cop swoops in to steal the loot. The cause of that is that he sets up the heist, the fake heist, to lure the crooked cop in. The cause of that is that he makes the deal with the mafia don. So when you play that, and that's all right, dense part of the ending, but you could see the cause and effect there where he makes the deal with the corrupt mafia don, which causes him to be able to set up the crooked heist, which causes him to have the, the loot, which causes the crooked cop to swoop in and take it, which causes the mafia don to be able to grab the cop and disappear him, which causes him to walk out of the trap that he was in. So it's a, it's a way of, of not only stitching together the, the story components by cause and effect, but actually um, uh, creating that cause and effect where it may not exist. In other words, if you have your story roughed out and you start doing reverse cause and effect and you start chaining backwards through from each effect back to its cause, you may get to a point where there isn't a cause in what you've figured out so far and that may be a hole in your plot, in the logic of the plot. And you say, well, what would cause that to happen? And you may come up with a bunch of different possibilities, find the one that works. And so then you have the next cause. And then what's the cause of that? So not only are you knitting it together as you build backwards, you're taking what you've already got, a story that's that you've sketched out, but you're now, it's like, it's like the, um, when, when you've designed a project and you know exactly what you want it to do, then you bring in the engineer and say, okay, make all the nuts and bolts of this actually work. Here's exactly what we want, but you gotta do the engineering so we know how heavy the steel has to be, how much concrete to pour. And they'll give you hard numbers of like, you need this much concrete and this much steel. 
So there's one thing of what you want to achieve, and there's another of the engineer comes in and makes it all, tells you what to do to make it all work. It's that kind of thing that as you take the story you've roughed out and stitch it together, engineer it, that you actually create the cause and effect as you build. And the trick to that tool is that you are <clears throat> asking at each point only what is the cause of that effect rather than what happens before it. Because any number of things can happen before it, but only one thing actually caused it. So that's a way to help separate the necessary from the unnecessary. It, what it does is it frees you from the profusion of unnecessary detail. The unnecessary kills scripts. And that's one of the things I was saying, I've trained a lot of um, creative executives in, at the, you know, the studios in Hollywood in this tool. And when I talk about separating the necessary from the unnecessary, they're all going, yes, you know, the unnecessary overburdens everything. Dialogues overwritten, scenes that shouldn't be there, whole acts that should, they're, they're bombarded by the unnecessarily constantly. It's one of the major symptoms they see uh, that scripts don't work, that dialogue doesn't work, the spine of the story doesn't work, because there's too much. There's, you don't have the, what's necessary, and there's too much of the unnecessary. It's a combination of the two. So what merely happens before an event could be any number of things. The thing that actually causes it is going to be among those things that happens before it, but you're finding the, the key links. You're basically, you're, you're creating a chain as you work backwards. And when you create the chain for the overall story, the chain of events, and you've rigorously included only that which is necessary to the forward action of the story, and you've rigorously excluded that which is unnecessary to the forward progression of events that constitute the spine of your story, then you've assembled it backwards out of your, what the material you have, and when you find holes in your plot, you invent to, to fill them in. So you're not only structuring it, but you're also developing it. You're creating when needed. Um, then when you read it from the bottom up, A causes B, which causes C, which causes D, and so on, that's the spine of your story. Whereas before you had a lot of clever elements to a story and it looked like it worked, but you hadn't done the engineering on it to make sure it really worked. And being able to stand back and look at your story like it starts here and it moves all through here, it also enables you to get a good objective look at what you've created so far. And it's not easy to get a good objective look at something you've been deeply immersed in for a while. <clears throat> because this plot construction comes after you've done a lot of creation and development. Then you have to stitch it all together into something that actually holds water. So, um, when you stand back and look at it, you may go, oh, there's the whole spine of the story in simple terms. And you may go, wow, that's much better than I thought it was going to be. Or you may go, God, that really sucks. I thought I had much more than this, but there it is. 
and blah, I gotta like, and you know, it's 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 it can it can be not working for you in any number of areas. Or you may go, you know, I always thought there was a some kind of problem in Act Two, but I couldn't put my finger on it. But boom, there I see it right there, and you can see uh, that part of it is distinctly weak, and it could be so much stronger and. So, you know, maybe you fix it in an afternoon, or maybe it's three weeks, or maybe it takes a month. Maybe you have to read a couple of great books or talk to somebody who really lived it. And then you come back and stitch it all back together again, and then look at it again and go, much better. But this one piece is still weak. So you're, you're evaluating, developing, structuring, and it's all in the process of plot construction. Um, <clears throat> so, once you've done the, the sequence, that's the sequence of events that the overall story consists of, just the big picture, then, so that's a sequence out of sequence proposition plot, three-step process. So the second step comes from Price's proposition that we were talking about before using logic to pull all the story elements together into a coherent whole. Like we were talking about how Pulp Fiction has three different stories in it, but Tarantino did an excellent job of pulling those all together into a coherent whole. It's not a mess of different stuff. It's one thing that happens to be done in an unusual way, but it's still perfectly crafted from a dramatic point of view. It's, it's extremely effective dramatically. And great storytelling has got both. So once you've got this tight chain of events, then you set up, a, set up a conflict, set up a potential conflict early on in the story, touch off a fight to the finish later in the story. And what Price said is instead of doing A and B, therefore C, he said central to our job as a dramatist is to have the audience up on the edge of their seat at the point when the fight to the finish has only just started and they don't know how it's going to turn out. So at the point when the fight to the finish has only just started, the audience comes up on the edge of their seat, like, how's this going to turn out? Because we've got a powerful proactive protagonist and we've got a powerful proactive antagonist and we genuinely don't, genuinely don't know who's going to win, how it's going to turn out. And so you set it up, you touch it off, you get the audience on the edge of their seat and you've either got the audience or you don't in terms of dramatic power on a scale of one to 10, how much are they on the edge of their seat? If it's really powerful, then you're going, wow, yes, this, I set it up, I touched it off, and I really got the audience. If you set it up and you touch it off and you can see it's still kind of weak or it's actually quite weak, that's, the power, that's what the proposition is for. So you can propose it take an objective look at it and then evaluate it and then revise as needed. If it's only like a seven out of 10 and you're like, no, it needs to be, I need a nine or a 10 in terms of a scale of one to 10 for how powerfully I have the audience on the edge of their seat at this point when, the, when what the whole story is built up to is unresolved, then you amplify different aspects of it to get the audience that much more on the edge of their seat. So you're, you're creating a tight sequence of cause and effect, then looking at the core conflict in the story, because it's really just two boxers in a ring fighting it out. It's two dogs fighting over a bone. Only one of them is going to walk away in the end. 
In fact, the oldest Greek drama was only two characters on stage. The introduction of a third character by Sophocles was considered a major innovation in drama. So the ability to see the core of your plot as two main fighters in a fight to the finish and only one of them is going to walk away helps you get right at the core of what makes your story work dramatically. So um, sequence is the reverse sequence of cause and effect that makes it tight. This, you set it up, you touch it off, you get the audience on the edge of their seat, unresolved. And if you're doing your job right, the question in their mind about how it's going to turn out is really powerful. Then you've got as much dramatic power as you can bring to, the, to how you're dramatizing this story. And then the last step is the answering of the riddle, the completion of the action, what, how the fight to the finish shakes out in the back and forth between protagonist and antagonist and who wins or loses in the end. So reverse cause and effect, set up the fight, touch it off, get the audience on the edge of their seat and wrap it up. So that's sequence proposition plot. And you do that once to the overall story, which makes it tight and dramatic. And well, I'll explain that as I go along. Then, as I said, you break the overall story up into acts. Like you literally look at the chain of cause and effect that you did in reverse and you say, okay, that right there is the end of act one. That right there is the end of act two. So you've got your acts. So you take act one and now you do sequence proposition plot to act one. So you start at the ending of act one where it ends up and you've already got, like if you had this chain of events, this part of it is act one. So you've got a chain of events right there that constitute act one. You take that over here and you, you've, so you look at that chain of events and you're going to start at the end again and work backwards through it and think it through in a little more detail so that you take what you've got and you say, okay, so the, like, the cop comes in and grabs the loot and the mafia guy grabs him and disappears him. So now you're going to think that through in a little more. It now becomes necessary to figure it out in a little more detail. You didn't want much detail when you're doing the overall story because you want to just see the main building blocks with nothing else in there because that's got to work. And if you get swamped by a profusion of unnecessary detail, it can be hard to see the forest for the trees. It can be hard to stand back and go, wow, that chain of events is the whole story. You don't want extra, you want it stripped down so you can evaluate it. Now it becomes necessary to think it through in a little more detail. It becomes necessary to layer in a little more detail. So you're thinking it through in a little more detail of like, okay, so is it like a bag of money or is it like diamonds or is it somebody that he was supposed to kidnap for the crooked cop? And how would, what, what would the rough mechanics of the trap consist of? Like where would the mafia guy be? And how do they make it so the cop really puts his foot in the trap? Even if there might be clues that he might begin to suspect or he has good instinct and he's like, something's wrong, but he still puts his foot in the trap. So you, you, it becomes necessary, necessary to figure out a little more detail and then you chain backwards to that, to the, to the, you, you're looking at what you already created 
Like what was the cause of that is that he does the actual heist that the crooked cop wants them to do, but there's some falsehoods in it because it's a setup. How does that go down? How does he do it? Is the crooked cop watching? What is he taking? Is he swapping it for something that's a key part of the trap? So you're, you, don't, you don't want much detail because you, you wanna, it's hard enough to figure it out and too much detail can just gum up the works. Um, and then you go back to the next, you, you look at what the next cause was and think that through. So what you've done is you may have like six causes that you started out with that you brought from the overall story and you've opened it up a bit more. So maybe now there's 12 or something like that. So you expand upon what you already had, amplifying in detail, and you've got more. Then you throw that act into a two-sided conflict where you set up a potential fight early on in the act, touch off a fight to the finish later in the act, get the audience up on the edge of their seat about how the conflict in that act is gonna turn out, and then a completion of that action of what's, what's the rest of it. So you've done sequence, proposition, plot. So you've not only constructed the story, but you're literally inventing your it's story development as well. You're figuring out, okay, so what would actually be in that bag that helps make the trap work, but the cop doesn't see the switcheroo or whatever. You're gradually developing those details without getting into too much detail. But you're, you're literally fleshing it out. You're literally inventing. Some of it, you'll have the details already figured out. Some of it, you're making up on the spot. And then you're creating conflict in that act, which there generally will be some conflict, but you're really constructing it, setting up a potential fight, touching off a fight to the finish in that act, getting the audience out on the edge of their seat. So the act itself has a high point of suspense out around the two thirds, three quarters point that really gets the audience up on the edge of their seat and then complete the action. So you've made it tight and dramatic. Then you do the same thing for act two. You expand upon the cause and effect, thinking each step through in a little more detail. You amplify whatever conflict is in that act, making sure you have a strong proactive antagonist and protagonist, touch off a fight to the finish, get the audience on the edge of their seat. So act two really gets the audience on the edge of their seat. It's compelling and, and it's, it, you have a completion of the action within that act. So now act two is tight and dramatic. Then you do the same thing for act three. Then you go back to act one and break that into sequences. There are two to five sequences in that act. And you take, if this is the cause and effect for act one, then you say, okay, so if this is the bottom, the beginning, and this is the end. So you say, okay, so that much of it's gonna be the opening sequence, that much is the next sequence, that much is the next sequence. You take this chunk, bring it over here and think it through in a little more detail. You expand upon it and open it up and you're figuring out the mechanics of the cause and effect for that sequence. And you're still rigorously excluding the unnecessary and using only that which is necessary to the forward progression of the action in that sequence. And then you structure the conflict, you set up a fight, touch off a fight, get the audience on the edge of their seat and resolve it within that sequence so that sequence, you've now fleshed it out, thought it through, made it tight, kept the unnecessary out of it, and structured compelling conflict so that it gets the audience up on the edge of their seat, two thirds, three quarters of the way through the sequence, and then complete the action. So you do that for each sequence in the story. 
Maybe there's 12 to 15 sequences in the story, maybe some more, but that's a lot of work. But so is 24 rewrites. So you're engineering your script properly before you write it. So you do it for all the sequences throughout the whole story. Then you go back to the opening sequence and you look at the cause and effect you've got for that and you break that into scenes. You could say, okay, this chunk of it is the opening scene, that's the next scene and so on. So then you take that chunk of the opening scene, that's the cause and effect that you've already figured out. And then you, at the scene level, you think it through again, you go backwards through it, visualizing it in more detail. What would be, now you're down to final detail. What would be the mechanics of who actually does exactly what? And you're paraphrasing the dialogue. So now you've got cause and effect for that scene. And then you structure the conflict in that scene because you never want any part of your story to go flat dramatically. You don't want scenes that are mere information, that are mere narrative. You want the scene itself to be tight and dramatic. So two thirds, three quarters of the way through the scene, the audience comes up on the edge of their seat. Um, so you made it tight and dramatic and then you write that scene. Then you do the same thing for the next scene. You, you, you do the reverse cause and effect, thinking it through in more detail, dramatizing it, and then you write that scene. You go all the way through writing each scene as you develop and structure it. And then you have a working draft. And so that's the function of sequence proposition plot as a plot construction tool. It also happens to be very much a story development tool. The two go hand in, hand in glove. But it's a remarkably powerful tool. Price constructed it, but didn't complete it. He explains it very clearly, but nobody else picked up on it. And, you know, I read a lot of his students' books and so on, and they picked up on proposition, and that really entered the, the lexicon of structural technique for the dramatist. Not widely, but it's, it's certainly known. Um, but none of his students were talking about sequence proposition plot. His student, who, you know, the two books that I read for three years, that student, student didn't even talk about reverse cause and effect, which Price went on and on and on about. So I was like, how could they not be seeing this? But it was like, you know, finding an old rusty tool out in the field behind Da Vinci's old workshop that had just laid there for hundreds of years and nobody ever tripped over it. And I found it and it was like, this works. And I combined it with what his students did. It really wasn't there. Price described it, but didn't build it at all. And he wasn't even satisfied with the proposition part of it. But his student did a lot of detective work because he knew that Price had a remarkably powerful tool, but it died before he wrote his next book and explained it. So he did a lot of detective work and pieced together, made the proposition more sophisticated and powerful. Um, and then this other playwriting teacher made the proposition work even better. And I used all of those and synthesized them together. So this was like an old tool that I found synthesized together with some of what his students said, and then I added to it and then worked extensively with it for many years. So it doesn't really exist anywhere. And when I started teaching, people kept saying, 
that they'd never seen anything like what I teach and that it worked better than anything out there. So partly I didn't expose myself to other dramatic writing teachers because I didn't want to start parroting what they were saying. I wanted to just stick with the, with the uniqueness of this. And it, it works, you know, it's a complete working technique. Um, but it's, it really is like nothing people have ever seen and it really works powerfully. And it's, it's very much plot construction. Uh, one of the things I say that's kind of fun is um, I only teach one thing, plot construction and dramatic principle. It's kind of a koan in a certain way <clears throat> because they're obviously two things, but plot construction comes out of dramatic principle. If you understand dramatic principle, the, that, the underlying principles that make dramatic structure work, then dramatic principle informs plot construction. They're very much the same thing in the same way that medical theory informs brain surgery or something like that. They're, they're very much different parts of the same animal. Um, okay, so I hope that was clear. Absolutely. Are both books required reading or is one of them no. out of print? Actually, neither. Um, Price's book is very dense reading and hard slogging. His student's book is really excellent, but I synthesize them. To, you can definitely learn from reading them, but you can learn more quickly from studying my book, writing a great movie, because it it's synthesized uh, a lot of their tools into a powerful unit. Price's book is kind of like walking through thigh deep mud. It's not, it's hard slogging and it's, it's a lot of work. Um, so anybody can go find it. It's, it's easy to find, but it's, it's brutally hard work. Um, and you won't find what's in my book in those books in a lot of ways. We've been talking a lot about the unnecessary and how it kills uh, scripts. And you said how 98%, possibly even 99 point whatever, 5% of scripts are totally unreadable. It has to do with both storytelling and script writing craft. Because a great story that is not stage worthy doesn't work. In theater, they have this term. They say it's a great story, but it's not stage worthy. Yes, it sounds great around a campfire, but we can't perform it on stage in a way that will grip an audience. So you can have the best story in the world, but if it's not, if it doesn't work dramatically, then it doesn't make a good script. And you can have phenomenal craft as a dramatist, but if your story is poor, then it's mere structure. It's just well-structured crap. It doesn't do you any good either. So a lot of stories fall, a lot of scripts that don't work fall into those two broad categories. They do that the underlying story is weak or has been done to death or any variations on why the story itself doesn't work. 
or that the structure of the story does not lend itself to being performed theatrically as a film, TV show, or stage, or even dramatic content these days. And the unnecessary is a big part of that because the unnecessary crops up everywhere. It's the profusion of unnecessary detail is always swirling around a story. It's, it's a lot like in, at NASA, they talk about launch weight, like a rocket is engineered to only lift a certain amount of, of weight of payload with the amount of rocket fuel that's on board. And it's a, it's an escalating problem where if the weight of the rocket, if, if what's being brought on the rocket gets heavier, then you need more rocket fuel to hoist it, which makes the whole rocket heavier. So you need more rocket fuel. It kind of exponentially, so they're ruthless in terms of what gets on that rocket ship. And so, because they have to have, the launch weight has to be what they say it has to be, because it's been engineered right down to the last liter of fuel that's on board. So in the same way, that part of your storytelling person is saying, I need this to go in the script too, it may sink it. It may just be too much for it. it part of what it is is that <clears throat> it has to do with the forward progression of the story's action and what the audience is actually seeing. There's a chain of events that constitute a scene or a sequence or an act or the overall story, and that's what is necessary to make that script work and if you try to add something in that is not necessary, if you go off on a tangent, then you may, you can well lose the audience, lose the audience's um, being on the edge of their seat. If, it, if, it, if you're following a chain of action, each cause creates an expectation in the audience of like, okay, so now what's that gonna cause? And then the effect of that happens, which causes the next effect. And so if you put a cause in motion and the audience is on the edge of their seat wanting to know what comes next and you wander off on a tangent, then the audience is going, no, where's the thing? Come on, come on. And, and, and it's, it can become flat dramatically or dead dramatically, or you just lose the audience and, and if you lose the audience, then the dramatic power of the material fades. It's one of the things, one of the reasons why a script doesn't work or why, a, a, you know, a, an actual movie or TV show or stage play doesn't work. So it has to do with the stripped down nature of dramatic writing. It's a lot like dipping a fish in acid and pulling out just the bones. That's the bones are what make the story work. And 
as I was, I, I've known this before, but the, the showrunner I was telling you about said it well. She said, once you strip the plot down to its just pure metal on metal bones, that gives you the flexibility to do something creative with it, to, to play around a bit because it's a very tight, rigorous structure. So you can you have room to layer in a little color, to let it breathe, to let it move. It's like a jazz musician where you know we're going to play A, B sharp, D. So you know what you're doing, but you can still improvise around it and kind of breathe life into it. You're still following the structure, but you all, there's also room to improvise because it's so stripped down. And that allows it to breathe. So it's not mechanical or anything. It's, it's alive. And so it's not so much what's unnecessary, it's what's necessary. And if you have, if you're a good storyteller and have great craft as a dramatist, then you know what's necessary to make the story work dramatically. And that's what's important. If you're a rocket scientist and you can't make the damn thing fly, then you don't know what's necessary. So there is really only what's necessary. Everything else is unnecessary. Some of those unnecessary things can be little details that add flourish and flavor and color and breathe life into it. But most of it is distracting, extra stuff, extra baggage. <clears throat> it's like handing a sprinter a backpack with 40 pounds of books in it. it. It will not work, but that's what people are often trying to do because they either don't have the craft to understand that which is necessary to make the story of their grandmother's escape from a concentration camp work dramatically because they're so attached to everything that happens in the story, they want to put everything in, but they're bringing their rock collection onto the rocket that's about to take off. And no, this was my grandmother's rock collection and it has to come with me to the moon. And they're like, not in a trillion years are you getting that pile of rocks into this launch pad. And so they're, they're ruthless about what gets on that rocket and not. And writers have to be the same thing. That's where they talk about kill your darlings, that kind of thing. It's once you understand the mechanics of what's necessary to make your story work dramatically, then almost everything else is unnecessary. And you're constantly combating it. It reminds me of a, an old uh, <clears throat> Tom Swift story from when I was a kid. He was an inventor. And he invented this device that expelled water. So he could go to the bottom of the ocean and turn it on and it would make a bubble the size of this room. And he was, you know, deep and he was on the bottom working and there was no water. And it literally expelled the water in the same way that it expels the unnecessary. There is nothing unnecessary allowed in because you're rigorously saying, what is the cause of that? It's like, Say that your sister calls you up one morning, wakes you up out of a dead sleep and goes, hey, 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 I just had this crazy dream that you won the lottery. And I mean, it was the most realistic dream. Go buy a ticket. 
And you're like, no, I'm a slip. No, no, go buy a ticket right now. You go buy the ticket and you win. And you're like, whoa. So the cause of you buying that ticket is she said, you have to. And now the things that come before you buying that ticket might be that you get a parking ticket, you buy a coffee, you get some cigarettes, all that stuff comes before you buying the ticket, but the cause of you buying your ticket is she demanded that you do so. So you're looking at the cause of an event rather than what merely happened before it. And the things that merely happened before it may or may not make it into the script, but only if they see there's the overall story where the big bones of the action are set up first. And then you figure out the bones of the action required to make it work at the act level. So you layer in a little bit more, but strict cause and effect. So nothing, you know, so getting that parking ticket may not be part of the chain of cause and effect that helped you get to the store and get the ticket. And then at the sequence level, you know, maybe that parking ticket is part of the chain of events that is necessary, or it may not get in. At the scene level, you're inventing a little more but there's things that never get into the story. It's like when you make a suit, there's a pile of cloth left around it on the floor at the end. You got a suit and there's a whole bunch of stuff that didn't get into the suit. <clears throat> so it's about that which is necessary and only that which is necessary and rigorously stripping out the unnecessary. Why are extremes necessary in story? It has to do with audience demand. Audience demand is a very powerful factor that the audience themselves are often unaware of. <clears throat> Audiences are very demanding. You go to the movies, you end up paying, you know, a hundred bucks between the babysitter and the parking and the $12 for a popcorn, you know, it's like, you want to go in there and want something to knock your socks off. You can stay home and watch the paint dry for free. You want whatever it is. If it's a romantic comedy, you want to come out of there feeling really wonderful. If it's a horror story, you want to be able to like not go to sleep that night. If it's an action thriller, you want to be tripping on adrenaline when you come out of there. You want that. You need it. And the times when you can see audience demand most clearly is when you go into a movie and it doesn't deliver what you wanted it to. And look at your response afterward. It isn't like, ah, uh, too bad. It's like, ah, I needed that. Come on, you know, it's like, so it has to do with the nature of the medium, that it's, it's an entertainment medium. It's the movies, it's a great TV show, it's a riveting play. And so extremes are just one aspect of making a story work so that it really knocks the audience for a loop, no matter what genre it is. You know, it can be a brutal thriller or a wacko comedy, but it still has to work dramatically and it still has to, basically the final effect of any script is the principal effect. It's like a, it's like a magic spell or a hypnosis where it all comes together in the end. Like in a hypnosis, I've talked to you for a while about blah, 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 blah. And then when I snap my fingers, you'll be, a, and boom, and all of a sudden it like crystallizes and you're like, and it's completed the transformation in you. 
So the final effect, the a good powerful ending, wraps up and delivers the entire power of the story into one power, like the crack of a whip, where just the last bit of it actually breaks the sound barrier, and that's where the the sound comes from. So a a powerful ending impacts the whole story. Extremes are just part of the recipe for making the story itself great and powerful. Like we were exploring streams, excuse me, we were exploring extremes in the idea about the IT guy, Derek. You know, we were looking at his dilemma and just exploring extremes as a natural part of that. How can we make his dilemma as riveting as possible? So that's naturally, part of that is naturally exploring the extremes. So even in a really fun romantic comedy like Music and Lyrics with Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore, <clears throat> it's fun, it's moving, it's enjoyable, you fall in love with them. They're playing with extremes within the genre and within the tone of the story. You don't want to violate the tone of the story. So you're, you're not turning a thriller into a horror movie just to expand into, expand forever. It's a bubble. You want to not violate the tone of the story. So you're always conscious of the context of the story and the extremes that work within the tone and so on. So it's really context sensitive and it has a lot to do with, with the genre, but it all goes back to that the key word in the, in the entertainment industry is outrageousness. So whatever genre you're in, part of what you have to factor in is that it really is entertainment. Even if it's a tragedy, it has to be gripping and compelling and riveting. <clears throat> you know, it's about getting the audience on the edge of their seat. And about, you know, why do people go to the movies? What do people look for in a great TV series? What do you hope for when you go to see a play that's supposed to be great? Which is a lot about audience demand. What happens when you combine Aristotle's dilemma with the early teachings of a 1900s playwright, W.T. Rice? Yes, he wasn't a playwright, he was a script doctor and a playwriting teacher. It was really a process of <clears throat> synthesizing them together. Um, my playwriting teacher taught me the basics of Aristotle, dilemma, crisis, decision and action, resolution, and then gave me the price, the price book and his student's book to read. So essentially they, one doesn't work without the other from, from one point of view. <clears throat> I've taught this for a long time and I've thought a lot about how to teach it. <clears throat> And I've tried different things where I only taught sequence, proposition, plot. But if you're doing sequence, proposition, plot, 
to a script that doesn't have a good strong dilemma, then the underlying material is weak dramatically. So you're merely providing a tight structure to something that is, that's underlying story is weak dramatically. <clears throat> it's kind of like, you gotta have good steel to make a good sword. So even if you have know how to pound a sword into shape and the steel is poor, then it still doesn't work. So it's, they're really, I kept thinking, well, I can just teach small workshops in different tools, but one is really indispensable to the other. And, you know, that's true of character development, that your characters have to be deep and complex and flawed and unpredictable and familiar. And I get a lot of that from the Enneagram, which is a personality profiling system. So that <clears throat> in terms of synthesizing the things that Aristotle noticed tend to be common to those dramas that grip an audience, dilemma, crisis, decision and action, and resolution, with the proposition and sequence proposition plot, they are all very much part of the same process that you're, it's kind of like digging into the ground and finding metal ore and smelting that ore and refining it and making that into a quality metal that you can then build with. <clears throat> so that dilemma, it's all part of dramatizing your story. You gotta have a good story idea to begin with and you tend to wanna have your protagonist trapped in a good strong dilemma and that dilemma dramatizes the story. It helps make the story more dramatically effective as you build it. So you're constantly paying attention to storytelling and the craft of the dramatist. So often each part of the story that you add to or amplify, you're also paying attention to helping it work dramatically by amplifying the power of the dilemma, making a better crisis, making a more compelling decision and action, a more satisfying resolution to the dilemma, a deeper, more complex character. Um, so that all of it goes into the recipe and you've got to have quality ingredients and good cooking skills because poor ingredients, a great chef can have a hard time with really poor ingredients. And the best ingredients can be lost on someone who can't cook. So that's essentially the nature of synth synthesizing Aristotle and Price together, among many other things. 
but it also goes back to like what I was talking about of learning how to juggle on a unicycle on a tightrope. There's different individual skills and you know the tools and the underlying principles that make those tools work and you gradually learn one principle at a time and one tool at a time and then synthesize them together into a, a set of professional skills you know much like a doctor gets in training where there's a whole lot of training that goes into their overall professional capacity and they, they often no longer see the seams between the individual parts because they've really been synthesized into one fluid professional capacity. What is the dilemma of magnitude? Magnitude means significance, substance. Is it significant to an audience? Um, you tend to want to have a good strong dilemma for your protagonist, but the dilemma can be weak. It may not pass what they call the so what test. <clears throat> uh, Sam Cohn, the founder of Columbia Pictures, used to run his development process like this. He would bring his writers into a conference room around a big long table and he'd put his head down on the end of the table and go, okay, what do you got? And the guy would pitch his idea, he'd be going, so what, next, <laughs> blah, 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 so what? And, and he'd go around the table and finally somebody would be like, ah, yeah, that's got something, that, let's work on that. So it's that kind of thing. It's like, it has to pass the so what test. You've probably seen movies where you're watching it and it gets going and you're like, wait, is that all this is? Come on. You know, it's like, or they're telling you a story and you can tell that they want you to feel X, Y, and Z about your main character, but you don't. And you're like, I just don't care. That's called trying to dictate an emotional response. It's like, I'm saying, you have to feel this way about this character because I say so. And you're like, I hate this person. You know, it's like, I don't, I'm not invested in them. I just, and, and that has a lot to do with like magnitude because if you are focusing on the specific aspect of a good, strong dilemma for your protagonist, it really has to be strong. It has to be significant. It has to be of substance to the audience so that they're really drawn into it. And that goes hand in glove with universality too, because they say that the deeper you go, the more universal your story becomes. So that you could be writing a story about, you know, a goat's herd in Ethiopia. And if you've got a really deep, compelling dilemma, then a banker in Tokyo could be like, I'm caught in the same thing. And a fisherman in Alaska could be like, I'm living that exact same dilemma of like honor versus duty or so, you know what? It's like if the average person in the audience, if it hits the average person in the audience where they live, then they'll connect to it. And because if they don't care about it, then you've got nothing because it's all about the audience. Whatever your, whatever your building into your story 
has to connect to the audience and get them up on the edge of their seat and keep them there. So there's a number of different ways in which you, you have to get the audience sympathy for the protagonist and maintain it. If the protagonist makes a bad choice or whatever, then the audience can be like, ah, I, I'm not rooting for that person anymore. I don't like that. I, I'm done. I, I don't care anymore. So you have to get it and keep it. And so magnitude is just one aspect of that. And it's like I was talking about the, the tools create certain distinctions and you want to utilize those distinctions as clearly as possible because that's where you get the power of the tools. And magnitude of a dilemma is one of those distinctions. What you don't want to do is muddy those distinctions every time they become inconvenient because then you lose the power of the tool. How does a writer know they have a good, strong dilemma? Well, so much of that comes with experience with the tool and knowing how to use it fully and properly. <clears throat> you know, it, it's like you see that in a doctor where their ability to diagnose something that's tricky has a lot to do with their training and their experience and their training often creates instincts in them where, you know, maybe the professor in medical school kept saying, never forget this, you know, you may never see it in your whole career, but always look for it. And so even if the doctor doesn't even remember that consciously, part of their brain is like going, did I check that box? And if they actually do, then they're like, wait, does it hurt when you sit up in the morning? And they're like, yeah, what does that have to do? My head hurts. Like, no, no, no. Okay, we got to get you into surgery right away. You know, like they're, they don't even know where that came from, but they're like, their training is built into their subconscious at a certain level. So there's a, you know, it depends on your experience with the tool and all that. But, you know, that's a distinction between a deeply trained writer and one who is solidifying their craft. You know, even as you're solidifying your craft, that's a key thing to look for is the strength of your protagonist's dilemma. Because it's so central, it's part of the foundation of your story, so that you know, if you're building a skyscraper and the foundation has been poured, you know, you may get an engineer and go around and double check to make sure that the concrete set up as hard as it was supposed to so you don't have weak areas in your foundation or that the substructure beneath the foundation isn't weak or might collapse in a heavy rain. You really want to make sure that the basic stuff you're going to build on is really solid because everything else that comes after that is impacted if there's a weakness in the, the first principles and the core things. Uh, one of my friends is a martial arts teacher and he said that by being a martial arts teacher for so long, he had to keep 
focusing on first principles because that's what he was teaching a lot of the times, just the most basic stuff. But he said after a while he realized that it was making him a much more substantial martial artist because the first principles are what everything else is built on and that that solidified his foundation. And I found that that was true too. He said they're first principles for a reason. They're the main underlying components that everything else comes from. So for instance, in I taught nonstop for 18 years in these small groups. There were six people maximum and each, I was working with each person on their own script. So like if I explained dilemma, then I would go around the room and I might start with you and say, okay, what's your story idea? And I, you know, I explained Dilemma. I showed how it worked on Godfather, Tootsie, Blade Runner, things like that. And then you tell me your story idea that you brought. And I've never heard it before. So you may have, you know, some completely wacko comedy that I'm like, wait, let me get some coffee so I can sharpen my brain here. I have to like wrap my brain around it and then look at it. I was like, okay. Is there a dilemma in the story? And if there is, can I, I can feel one, I can see one half of it very clearly. I can feel the other half, but I can't put my finger on it. And after a while, it's like, oh, right, it's that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, you got a, a, a comedy with a dilemma that's funny. That's what you want. Like, that's clever. And you may be saying, I didn't know that was in there. I'm like, yeah, but that, that's my skill with the tool enabled me to find it. And you're like, wow, yeah, that's, I love that. I didn't know that I had that in there. I was like, well, it, it was there, you know, but I've even, I have substantial expertise in this skill. It took me a bit to kind of feel around in the mud and be like, oh, that, wow, look at that. You know, so it's like skill and, and familiarity with it. But in terms of a student knowing if they have a good, strong dilemma, Part of it is experience and part of it is just rigorous technique, trying to use the tool explicitly and to utilize all its distinctions very clearly because they have, the distinctions are there for a reason and have great power. And dramatic writing is generally considered the most elusive of all the literary disciplines. It's tricky, it's slippery, it's hard to pin down. Um, a script can work three quarters of the way through and then fall apart and nobody knows why it fell apart and nobody can make it work. Or a script can have look great on paper, have all the top people, all the money in the world, and it goes out and loses $100 million on its opening weekend. And the same basic story shot for $62,000 in a shoebox and, you know, with two actors goes on to win Best Picture and, you know, make $100 million. And they're like, it's the same story. And we had all the top people in everything. And they looked the same on paper, but theirs worked. And I don't know why theirs worked and I don't know why ours didn't. It's, it, it's slippery. And so the ability to use the tools as rigorously and explicitly as possible helps you to grab onto this slippery thing that like keeps spinning under your touch. And it's like, I can't even pin it down to use the tool. The more you can use those distinctions in the tool, kind of like dragon talons, 
where you can grab this slippery marble and make it actually stop in place and really do like serious surgery on it and like, okay, now that may fix it because it had this wobble and nothing we did made it work, but I was able to really pin it down to get down to real specifics with it. And all of a sudden, like that part of it oh, seems to work better. And yeah, it helps the whole thing. So it's part of it is just pure technique. And part of it is just pure intuition with storytelling skills and seat of the pants, making stuff up. And it's like mud wrestling. It's like you're down in the mud. You can't even see half the stuff. And you're like, I can't even get these two to click together. You know, it's, it's not easy to make a script work. And, and that's why I keep saying you've got to have huge chops as a storyteller and you've got to have serious craft as a dramatist and you've got to really be able to synthesize those two together. And the better you get at that, the more your scripts will tend to work. It's about being consistent. A number of writers <clears throat> have a great first script and it's a big hit and they're the toast of the town and everybody's hiring them and they can't make their second script work and they don't know why their first script worked and they don't know why the second one isn't working. And, you know, being able to be consistent is, is really important. And so it's a tricky business. It's not easy. And you want to really have big muscles in every department, storytelling, craft as a dramatist, character development, all this stuff, you've got to really be hitting on all cylinders to have a consistent career. Are there any techniques a writer can employ to generate a great premise? Well, yeah, that goes back to, you know, what I was talking about, like attack as a storyteller and to, you know, have a sense of adventure or even depth because, you know, a sense of adventure makes it sound like, you know, you're writing some great, you know, action comedy that knocks everybody's socks off, but a sense of adventure can be like a riveting drama or, a, you know, a, a tragedy that no one will ever forget for the rest of their life or a completely harebrained, goofy comedy, you know, that's like just off the deep end. So it's just thinking big and <clears throat> going for the roots of what makes people tick and what transforms people and what kind of situations are compelling and what has entertainment value and what's been done to death and what's fresh. So it's really a conglomerate of attack as a storyteller, experience with what tends to work, reading, constantly reading great scripts and pushing the envelope, but also connecting with the average member of the audience. You know, one of the things I talk about in terms of dilemma, but it's applicable in many different arenas, is that once you get your story up and running and you've got something you can go like, okay, here it is. And it, it can be dilemma or anything, but one of my fundamental questions is, okay, 
now that I've got this up and running, one of the things I want to do is, in my imagination, pick somebody that lives down the street who might be a plumber or an orthopedist or a CEO of a company and like, can they connect to this story? Because if your average Joe doesn't connect to the story you've created, then it's kind of dead in the water in a certain way. And, you know, one of the, one of the key things, one of the intermediate steps in terms of looking at the person that lives across the street and trying in your own imagination to say, would they, do they care about this? Is looking at the way in which, how do you care about it? And, and in what way does it grab you? And you may find, well, you know, actually, if this main character did this and this, I would care a whole lot more actually. And, and being able to ground yourself more in the material and the strength of the material and the universality of the material, that can help you then look at the plumber down the street who's coming into the movies on a Saturday night with his family and expecting a fun ride or a riveting adventure and, you know, trying to make sure that your average Joe can relate to it and care about it and so on. So that goes into it too. I hope that answers your question. It's not an easy question because it's different for every writer and there are definitely trip, tricks and tips to doing that, but they're all just things that you pick up as you go along and incorporate into your process so that you have the storytelling chops to be thinking adventurously no matter what the genre and the skill, the, the ability to turn a professional critical eyeball onto your material and go, you know, I had fun creating it and I think it's great, but it's not cutting it yet. So maybe it goes on the shelf or maybe you just throw it away. Jeff, what is an Enneagram and how does it help a writer create complex characters? The Enneagram is a really valuable tool. It's a personality profiling system that is a mix of ancient wisdom about human nature and cutting edge psychology. I was introduced to it by a friend of mine who was a, a top psychiatrist in New York City and he was a good friend and he loved movies, so he loved to consult on projects that I was working on. So like if I was developing a script with a client, I would often bring him in. Uh, like one time I brought the actor John Leguizamo to him. He was working on um, a murder story and he wanted some in-depth stuff, the kind of stuff that Armand could bring. And he met with Armand and I talked to John afterwards and uh, Armand had sat him down in front of police video of a guy who had just murdered his parents 45 minutes beforehand. This was real footage. And John said, oh my 
God, it messed me up. It was like I couldn't sleep that night. And I was like, whoa. And I said, well, was it good research? It goes, oh, top shelf, like off the charts, crazy. And I worked with Armand a lot that way. And at one point he said to me, because <clears throat> he was doing uh, character profiles on, on these. At one point he said to me, have you ever checked out the Enneagram? It's the best thing out there. I had never heard of it before. And coming from him, he was really brilliant and really at the top of his game. And for him to say, it's the best thing out there, I was like, whoa. It wasn't like, oh, I think I'll check it. I was like, boom. I was like right on it. And I studied it intensively for a couple years. And it, what it, it purports that there's nine basic personality types. And each of them has their own uh, basic fears, basic desires, motivations, preferences, tendencies, weaknesses, flaws. And there's all these different, and not only all that, but each of the nine types has different aspects. Like they're either a healthy aspect, an average aspect, or an unhealthy aspect. And depending on what shape you're in emotionally and psychologically, you are, your life is either coming together, you're, you're integrating, or your life is falling apart, you're disintegrating. And if you, if you are coming together as a person emotionally and psychologically, then you will tend to exhibit the average to healthy aspects of the type you are. <clears throat> if you are falling apart as a person, then you will tend to exhibit the average to unhealthy aspects of that personality type. So it is a, um, and they say that your average person flickers between all those all day long, where you can have extremely healthy reactions or actions in certain situations or extremely unhealthy, and you flicker back and forth all day long like real people in and out of different emotional states and so on. But you will tend to be what you are. In other words, if you tend to be healthy, then most of your stuff will tend to be average to healthy. <clears throat> and it is a, so like the nine types are like, um, they give them labels, but they don't use the labels very much. Type one, they call the reformer. Type two is the helper. Type three is the achiever. Type four is the individualist. Type five is the thinker or the, they have different names. Type six is the loyalist. Type seven is the enthusiast. Type eight is the leader or the challenger. Type nine is the peacemaker. But because each of those labels has certain connotations with different people, the people who work with it professionally, they'll call you a one or a four or a seven because it's context free in a certain way. <clears throat> the labels don't bring their own misunderstandings to people who are less skilled in the application of the, of the technique. So that like a type three, the achiever can be very high performing. It'd be like a Tony Robbins type where they really work hard to actualize all their best capabilities. Tom Cruise is a type three. People who can really achieve great things, 
push themselves to be the best they can be and can really be extraordinary. But in the unhealthy or in the average aspects, <clears throat> they can be really concerned with how they appear. They're constantly wanting to look good even if they aren't doing well emotionally. In the unhealthy aspects, they can actively lie to look good even when they're in really rough shape. They're really over-concerned with how they appear and will do even devious things to maintain that appearance. Uh, so that in the extremely unhealthy aspects, they can even be suicidal or murderous to maintain the illusion of their superiority or achieve their achievements, even if they're not there. So in terms of the, in both the creation of a character and the development and dimensionalization of a character, these the, the, the basic human nature, which is built into the study of the Enneagram and the cutting edge psychology, which is built into it, inform what you both find in your character and can create in your character. For instance, if I, like for instance, going back to your IT guy, Derek, and the young woman, Skylar, <clears throat> uh, I would, one of the things I'd be looking at, and I'd be doing that once I get a dilemma up and running, I'm also looking in the early stages of developing a dilemma for Derek, I would go very quickly to which Enneagram type is he? Because that's gonna inform so much who he is and how he interacts with his dilemma and what his basic fears and basic desires and tendencies and motivations and disabilities and flaws and blind spots, all of that inform not only what the dilemma is, but how he will interact with it because of his basic fears and drives and all that. So let's see, if I'm looking at him, might he be a one or a former? It's possible two, the helper, maybe three, the achiever, possible four, the individualist, possible because he is, an individualist can be uh, intuitive, artistic, want to sort out their own emotions before they deal with anything else, uh, possibly a type five, um, a thinker, a, you know, someone who is perfecting things before they launch out. Sherlock Holmes was a type five wants to have everything figured, like a type four wants to figure out their emotional stuff before they move ahead. A type five wants to figure out the mechanics of a situation and have a lot of knowledge because their basic fear is that they're not well prepared. So they're protecting themselves. So they want to know everything before they take a step. So they spend too much time figuring out before they take action. So they can be extremely world-changing when they're on top of their game and see things in a completely fresh way, but they can also be paranoid and reclusive and dissociated from who they really are because they're desperately trying to figure it all out in their head before they do their debut. Um, so maybe he's a five. He could be a six, the loyalist, which is lends itself to the IT, who is the guard watchdog for this 
mainframe and the whole company. The type, one of the main motivating factors in a type six is they are constantly hoping that the next person they latch onto is gonna be the one who can show them how to navigate life successfully. Are you the one? Can you help me learn how to make my life work? Which, see that goes with the watchdog for the corporation, but also Skylar, like, are you the one that's gonna show me how to make my life work finally? So a six is a possibility. A four is a possibility because the um, a four is inwardly tuned, has a lot of artistic sensitivities and a lot of inner debate and wants to make things work at an emotional level. Uh, I'm not describing it accurately enough, but this is really an overview too. But a four is an interesting possibility for Derek. A six is an interesting possibility. A seven, the enthusiast is the busy, fun-loving type, which could be an, a very interesting possibility for uh, Skylar. Someone who's like wildly enthusiastic, the life of the party, always busy. A healthy seven is a lot of fun. An unhealthy seven can be a drug addict. They're a constant escapist mode. A seven's main motivation is to, um, in the unhealthy aspect of their fears, they wanna, they wanna, what's the word, kind of dispel unease. They can't sit and deal with emotional complexity. They wanna escape from it. They, they don't have the, the bone that enables them to sit there and figure it out. They're in escape mode a lot if they're average to unhealthy. So they're always looking for the next thing. They're always planning. Even if they've spent three months planning a, a big cruise with all their friends, they can't enjoy the cruise because they're busy planning the next thing. It's always about their plans. But they can be really fun to be around and a healthy seven is really fun and a really healthy, happy, integrated person. So I would think that she's gonna be pretty unhealthy but they look dazzlingly fun, especially to someone who is feeling miserable and trapped and caught in a rut and no way out. So it's kind of an interesting chemical connection where her malfunction meshes with his malfunction in a way that she looks like his savior and he may look like her savior, so they sink on a lot of levels and they fit each other's compulsive pattern in a certain way that even though it's an unhealthy relationship, they get a lot of mileage out of it before each realizes that, wow, I'm back where I started or worse because he's just as messed up as I am in a completely different way and we really screwed this thing up you know, it's that kind of thing. So in many ways, it's a mixture of what you bring to the picture with your story and what the Enneagram offers as possibilities for character traits and possibilities for character. <clears throat> you, you, when you come with your story, you have a certain amount of something already. You're not coming with nothing and just looking at the Enneagram. 
For instance, with the story of Derek, you've already got a raw story and we've done some work with Dilemma, so you've got him trapped. And then if you find that he seems like a type 6 Enneagram, then the tendencies and basic fears and all the things that make up a 6 influence your story and your story influences how you use those parts of the Enneagram. For instance, if you're looking at the mechanics of a type 6 and it offers some dynamic possibilities for what Derek might be like as he falls apart in a crucial moment of the story, then that could really inform the story choices that you make and the story choices that you make can inform what parts of the Enneagram you use or amplify or play with. You know, so much of it is an experimental mix as you're really working with everything to gel that which you decide to run with. One of the key ways that I use the Enneagram is that if you've got a story idea that's up and running and you've worked on Dilemma, then that's a point as, as you begin to get into Dilemma for your protagonist, that's when it's very useful to look at the Enneagram because the, the character traits of the type of your protagonist, the personality type, will inform and influence your insight into the dilemma. It can suggest possibilities. It can deepen and dimensionalize the dilemma. And the way that I tackle that is that I'll have that character in mind, like Derek, and then I'll look at the one sheet for each of the nine types, and those come from the um, EnneagramInstitute.com website. I work with a slightly older one sheet from when I wrote my book around 2006. It, it fits on one sheet of paper and it has a lot of information. What they have for their one sheet now is they've expanded upon it, so there's more complexity, which is great, I just like going back to the one sheets that are in my book, writing a great movie, because it's short and sweet. Then once you've worked with that, you'll find the stuff on their website, which opens it up a little more to be very useful too. But what I do is that I think I put myself in the position of my character, or I think about my character, the lead character, and look at the one sheet for each of the nine types. And I'll sometimes just use my book or I Often I print out the one sheets because I've saved them. And I'll look at a type one thinking about Derek and be like, okay, so reformer, there's some key aspects, maybe a couple of them I underline, that's a maybe. Look at the two, go through that. Three, oh, that has more stuff, that's interesting. Four has some distinct possibilities. Five, and you know, and maybe when I'm looking at a five, well, even while I'm thinking about Derek, I may notice that, wow, that could really be the, the predator who's operating Skylar 
and it just jumps out at me like, wow, there's there's that person. So you're just kind of like going through the nine one sheets, nine one sheets, mostly one character at a time, but sometimes other ones will just jump out at you. And so I found that I think Derek really seems like a six. And you kind of like this, you know, as you're looking through the one sheet, a whole bunch of stuff starts to light up for you. And then once you've figured out who your main characters are, which type your main characters are, even if you have a couple possibilities, like at first you're not sure, you think Derek might be a four or a six and you play with that for a while. And then usually your understanding of it will crystallize after a while where perhaps you see how Derek reacts in a key moment and that really resonates with a tendency of a type six. And then you really see, yeah, I really think he is a type six, not a type four. So your, your understanding gradually crystallizes. At first it's tentative and you keep the possibilities open because you're not trying to force any of these types on your characters. You're just trying to listen to who your characters are and listen to what the Enneagram is saying as possibilities for them, which type they might be and so on. But after a while, you will... Um, your understanding will crystallize. And at that point, it's really interesting to go to the book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, uh, which is written by the same guys from the Enneagram Institute. And it's a big, thick book, and there's a 40-page chapter on each type, which takes you much, much deeper than the one sheet did. And it really goes so deep into so many aspects of that character type that it helps you dimensionalize them. It shows the reasons why these tendencies are there and why their fear is there and the way in which they fall apart when things really go bad for them and the way in which they can go from being in an extremely unhealthy reactive state to a healthy proactive integration where they they can pull themselves together and become a healthy aspect of themselves. You know, and scripts deal with character arcs. So where a person's flaws and weaknesses and disabilities and all that are either resolved if there's a creative resolution and they become a more healthy version of themselves or they disintegrate and become, you know, fall apart completely in, in a tragic resolution. But the 40-page uh, the chapter is really a deep and complex journey through the full mechanics of what makes this person tick. And it really gives you tremendous depth and dimension and flaws and strengths and hopes and subconscious attitudes and how they react in a bad situation and how they can pull themselves out of a tailspin in certain types of situations. So it really is very comprehensive. And one of the things that's most interesting about working with the Enneagram is that I've done it hundreds of times for so many different characters. And 
for instance, when I'm going through the 40-page chapter for a character that's maybe a five, maybe I've already done 15 different characters that are fives and really studied them in depth and really know them well. But maybe one was like a serial killer in, you know, the bombings of Ireland. And one is a, you know, a schizophrenic baker in Argentina and like completely in a comedy. And so that the characters come in such completely different contexts that when I start going back through something that I've been through a whole, whole bunch of times, like the 40-page chapter on a type 5, it's like I've never seen it before because it's completely different because I'm inhabiting this baker now instead of this bomber. And it's literally like I've never seen this stuff before, which is so interesting because I've been soaking my head in it for years. So it's fresh each time, which is great because that's what you want when you're developing characters. It's not just a rehash of people you already know, but a completely fresh discovery from a completely new character. And you're not only are you pulling new material out of what you've already been through, but your facility with the tool grows and expands each time. So, you know, you just have more facility, more ability to understand more complexities, and also the ability to just see it more simply and clearly, like, oh, it's just that, instead of like, it's all this stuff. So you, you know, your, your capacity to work with the tool both clarifies and deepens into more complexity. Because sometimes the ability to just see things clearly and simply is the aha moment that you've been working toward maybe for years in terms of using this tool where you start to understand the different personality types more clearly. Even if you have to work hard to get there each time, but you're a little better at it each time. And yet it's always new. That's endlessly fascinating. Okay, so that's a good tour through the Enneagram. Jeff, can you give us an overview of the 36 dramatic situations? The 36 dramatic situations is really a brainstorming tool. It works with elements that are common in storytelling, like madness, disaster, ambition, those types of things. It was created by an Italian playwright named Carlo Gazzi in the 1700s, and it was endorsed by Goethe and Schiller. And on the strength of those endorsements that hung around for about 150 years until a guy named George Pulte turned it into a book in 1916. And then it picked up some steam again. But it's, it's unknown by many people. And I've met a lot of people who said they had the book but could never make heads or tails out of it. It's, it's basically what Gatsi said was that all stories consist of these basic 36 human emotional conflicts. And there are things like ambition, madness, conflict with a God, the necessity of sacrificing loved ones. And it's very similar in nature to the periodic table of elements in chemistry, 
where you know carbon, hydrogen, all that stuff. So with the periodic table of elements, you could describe anything in this room quite completely from one point of view. Like this table is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, whatever, all the elements that are in it, you can describe it quite completely from that one point of view. That's only one point of view, but that's getting right at the elements that are in it. And in storytelling, it's the same thing where you can say, okay, this story has madness, conflict with a god, vengeance taken for kindred upon kindred. Um, and there's different, so different active elements in any given story, which is useful because it helps you when you're starting out with a story where you can, like for instance, let's look at your Derek story idea again. So we'd be looking at what would be, let me just get my book here because it's easy to go down the one sheet oh, great. for these. So <clears throat> here's a, a list of the, here's a list of the 36 dramatic situations just listed simply. So looking at it in terms of Derek's story, so deliverance, rescuing or being rescued, crime pursued by vengeance, pursuit, disaster, revolt, daring enterprise, the enigma, the riddle or the mystery, obtaining, madness. He may be like losing his mind as being pressed into this dilemma, into like, what do I do here? I'm in love with her, she's offering me a life of adventure but I have to betray my most core values. But are those core values based on something that were real or was I snookered into guarding criminals? I don't know, I'm losing my mind. These are all just story possibilities. Some of it is like, some of what I was doing were elements that are already active in the story idea before it's even touched. You wanna see what you've got, it's like taking inventory. Like what are the elements that are already active in it? And there may be a lot more than you thought there were, which is good. Um, Self-sacrifice for an ideal, all sacrificed for a passion, the necessity of sacrificing loved ones, is he gonna have to give her up? Rivalry of superior and inferior, that's always a good one because it's so subjective. Of like who's the superior and who's the inferior? And it's completely, point of view sensitive. And it can even flicker back and forth of who has the upper hand in any given situation. Uh, discovery of the dishonor of a loved one if he's finding out that she is you know, a criminal. Obstacles to love is very active in this story but before it's even touched. An enemy loved, falling in love with someone who turns out to be your enemy. Or enemy love can be fascination with an enemy. Um, or coming to understand your enemy or falling in love with your enemy, that kind of thing. Ambition is very central in this story because Derek is stuck in this rut and he has ambitions for more, but he doesn't know how to get there and she may awaken ambition in him. Or he may have a curious lack of ambition. Like, why don't I care that I'm stuck in this rut? Or why don't I care that she's dragging me down this weird road? So it can be the, the very absence of one of these situations. Like you, if you look at a character's ambition, it may be that their ambition is wildly out of proportion and getting them in trouble. 
or they could have utterly no ambition, which is out of proportion for a given situation. It's curious and like, why does this person genuinely not care which way they go? So it's like it can be the presence or absence of these things too that can be suggestive. These are really suggestive elements for brainstorming. So you can see that some of what I'm doing here is as I'm going down the list and I'm thinking about this story, it's helping with the what if. I'm seeing what is already there before the story was ever even touched, the elements that it showed up with. And what if his ambition to forge a wildly new life for himself with her is something that explodes in him like he's realizing how dead his life had been before because he was just, even though he was dissatisfied with the job in many ways, he was still just nose to the grindstone, numb, plodding ahead. And he's like, how did I ever live like that for years and years? I couldn't go back to another second of that. I'd blow my brains out. It's like, yeah, she's trouble, but I can't go back to nothing. I can't go back to an emotional vacuum anymore. I kind of stuffed myself into that to forge ahead, but I don't fit in that room anymore. Conflict with a god, that's always interesting because it doesn't necessarily have to have any kind of connotation, any kind of religious connotation. It, conflict with a god suggests a religious connotation, but it's just anytime there's something going up against a, a bigger power, it could be you versus the neighborhood bully. It could be trying to get, you know, something done against City Hall. Uh, so that it's, these are very flexible. The less literally you take these, the more actual use you can make of them. So you want to have a poetic or metaphoric frame of mind as you look at these. You don't want to be stuck with their actual definitions at all. If you look at one of these things, even if it's not a valid chain of logic that you look at one of these things and it gives you 10 ideas, those 10 ideas are what's important. This is just a catalyst. In chemistry, a catalyst is something that you throw into a chemical mix and it creates a reaction even though the original catalyst stays the same. So even if this triggers, makes you think of something that happened to you as a kid, which makes you think of a weird possibility for your story, which triggers dynamic possibilities for the ending you've been stuck on, it doesn't matter how this triggered a chain of thought that got you there. Their job is to throw gasoline on the fire and trigger stuff. And that's, that's its only function, really. It's just a brainstorming tool. It's just to expose you to the elements that are already active in your story, even if you hadn't noticed that already, and to expose you to possibilities that you wouldn't have thought of in 20 lifetimes, things that you ne would never have occurred to you that all of a sudden are like, wow, that could really tweak my third act. I've been dying for something like this. You know, it's just like, it's, it's throwing hand grenades into your story idea. Erroneous judgment is very central in this story. Look how big it is before you touch anything. Because he's like, he's looking at her going, am I crazy? Or is she like the most exciting thing in the history of mankind? Or am I like ready for a freaking straitjacket? 
and like her too, you know, it's like, I don't even know which way my head's screwed on anymore. And like the things that I'm contemplating doing with her and overturning my job and committing treason and blah, blah. It's like, I don't know whether to shoot myself or run off with her and have 20 kids. It's like, I don't know what I'm thinking anymore. Recovery of a lost one. Is he going to get his own sense of self back? Loss of loved ones. Is he going to lose her? Is he losing himself? Is he losing his sense of honor? So these are like, you want to have a really flexible frame of mind when you look at them because you'll get so much more out of them. It's like the wrench doesn't have to fit the bolt head exactly if it'll turn it. You know, even if it kind of fits and it, it'll turn it, that's all you need. You're just trying to advance your story or to see more deeply into it because you're penetrating into the inner elements that constitute your story. This tool is really useful when you're starting a story from scratch because say you're riding on a bus and you hear the two people in front of you talking and it's a whacked out conversation and you're kind of listening in because it's so interesting and one of them says something and you're like, that would make an amazing screenplay. Holy crap, you rush home and you're like, boom, oh my God, and you just go on a mile a minute. That's a great time to go to the 36 dramatic situations because you're exploding with ideas. And if you look down the list of the 36, you'd be like, that's already in there, that's already in there. I didn't know that's in there, but boy, is that potent. And could that be in there? That would really whack it out in a completely dangerous way or make it more hilarious or whatever the story's going. It's like, God, that is pure dynamite. And it's like your head's already exploding with ideas and you're tossing explosive elements. You're playing mad scientist with explosive elements. And you may hit one of them and you're like, that can't be, or could it? And you'd be like, that's scary. That's truly terrifying. I, I don't even dare think that, but you can't get away from me. You're like, okay, well, what if I did do that? And you're like, so it may trigger a hundred ideas. It's like one of them can give you a cascade of ideas. Like you can barely write them all down. You're already cascading with ideas. And this is throwing gasoline on the fire. You're throwing explosive elements into the mix, playing what if. And so if that one idea gives you 10 ideas and each of those gives you 10 ideas, get all that stuff down on paper. That's what's important. That thing doesn't mean anything. It just got you thinking. So it's a extremely valuable brainstorming tool in part because you're being exposed to one complete spectrum of ideas. Because where the idea originally came from, Gatsi said, this, these 36 dramatic situations are every element that is in any story anywhere. And a lot of people said, that's insane. I could come up with way more. And they tried to come up with a list and they couldn't even get to 24. They were like, actually, it's better than I thought. And then Schiller and Goethe both said, this is amazing. And so it just hung around and it's, it's just a tool. It's just one complete spectrum of ideas that you can whip out and use 
to trigger ideas for your story and to see elements in it that you hadn't noticed so that you're going, wow, this idea was deeper and more complex than I thought at first glance. There's more going on there than I noticed at first, which is great because then you've got better material, you've got more to work with. If you're doing a TV series, you're like exploding with seasons and you know cliffhangers and characters. These things can suggest characters, they can suggest resolution, they can complicate dilemmas, but it's just one complete spectrum of possible ideas. So it's not the be all and end all. It's not the only place to look for story ideas. It's just one tool. And not only is it useful when you're starting out on an idea, but it's useful to take a quick run through the one sheet every now and then. Just like partway through your script, you may go back and look through it and go, a oh, crime pursued by vengeance. That's emerging as a much more substantial aspect of the story. And I hadn't really thought it through yet, but so it can, it can just shake things loose or help you solve things you've been wrestling with or expose you to possibilities that might never have occurred to you or help you see that this element is very active in the story if you hadn't noticed it yet. And then when you get stuck at different parts of the story where you're really stuck on your third act or something, going back through it can shake things loose, clarify things, open up possibilities, help you see things that are in it that you hadn't noticed before, that kind of thing. So it's, a, it's really an explosive brainstorming tool. And you wanna have broad flexibility with it, a real sense of play, not feel trapped by any of it. It doesn't dictate anything to you. It doesn't say this has to be in there. And even if at the beginning of the story, you were like, wow, ambition is right at the nucleus of this story. By the time you've worked on it for a while, you may come back and look at it again and be like, ambition doesn't even matter anymore. It's like, I thought that was huge, but it's grown and changed so much. So you're not, it's, it's just, it's just like, getting blown in the air by explosives at certain points in the development process to shake things loose, trigger ideas, help crystallize things, clarify things, simplify things, complicate things. And that's all part and parcel of the normal storytelling process anyway. This is just some good chemicals to throw in there that are like fertilizer or clarifying agents or complicators or clarifiers. So you see it in super clarity all of a sudden, like it can take a while, spend time with the story for quite a while before you get true clarity with it. Like um, Sidney Pollack, when they were working on Tootsie, spent a long time trying to figure out what the story's really about. And it wasn't until it finally dawned on him that Becoming a woman made a man out of Michael Dorsey that all of a sudden it like crystallizes like, ah, now I know in really simple terms, that's what the story's about. And he said, I went back and looked at every scene and like, how does this scene work with, clarify, amplify, solidify the idea that becoming a woman makes a man out of Michael Dorsey? And he said it helped a lot in terms of working with the crew, working with the actors, 
his own understanding of it. And he said, it doesn't mean the story's gonna be good, it just means that I know what it's about. And that helps me so much as a director. I think you've said that the word theme has been misused extensively uh, when it comes to film and television. But I believe you've also said that beware of the, with the simple one-liner. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a theme is something that is misunderstood by a percentage of people. Uh, one of the things that my playwriting teacher pointed out to me back when I was learning this stuff, and he, he explained it, and then he said, this is really important, make sure you absorb this. And he said, the way in which the protagonist resolves the dilemma expresses the theme of the story. And it's very, very clear because the resolution is where the whole story comes together and the completion of the story completes the magic spell on the audience, which crystallizes the mood that they go home in. Like in a romantic comedy, it's been fun and fresh, but also the, the romance falling apart and things getting troubled and then finally coming together in the end. And usually you feel happy and in love at the end if it's done right. And all of that was skillfully orchestrated by the writer and the filmmakers. And the theme also comes through that, that which is being said organically by the story comes together in the ending. And so if you look at the protagonist's active resolution of the dilemma and look at the way in which the protagonist resolves the dilemma, that enables you to put your finger on the theme. So for instance, if you, uh, let's say in a, in a what if with our story about Derek, that say that he finds, he creates a third way out of the dilemma in which he's neither trapped by the demands of his company nor by the demands of the blackmailer or whatever it ends up being, and neither one is a good way out. And by thinking on his feet and maybe working with Skyler, he comes up with a creative way to skate through this horrible trap that he was in. And so if you look at, not you look at what he does, but you look at the way in which he does it, it's about like, thinking creatively and realizing what he really needs in life where he was always denying his own needs and lying to himself and like that he's finally brutally honest with himself and is genuinely in love with her even though she has betrayed him but she's also been a victim and she's changed and he's grown and he's able to synthesize a new life for himself in the process of figuring out how to get out of the trap, that all of that is what the story is about thematically. It's about creating a new life for yourself and finding a way out of hell and powering out of a skid. And you can see that that creative 
type of resolution of taking command of his life and powering out of a bad situation is what the story is about thematically. And what's interesting about being able to articulate the theme that's emerging organically from a story is that you often only start with a sense of it. Like in looking at that type of possible resolution for Derek, I can see it and sort of talk around it and describe it in a bunch of different ways like I just did, like I just said it about 10 different ways. But my, my ability to articulate it crisply and cleanly is not there yet because it, you have to live with it for a while and look at what the audience leaves with. They leave with a sense of that theme in their gut, in their soul. And if you stop them on the way out and ask them to articulate the theme, they probably couldn't. They just have it at a gut level. It's in them. So it has a lot to do. You want to be able to dwell with a partially formed understanding of something as a crucial step in synthesizing your understanding. People are very uncomfortable with partial solutions. They always want to go, no, I, I need to have the whole thing in my in a nutshell. So they don't like partial understanding. It kind of freaks people out. But as a creative writer, you need to get comfortable with that because so often you're feeling your way through things where you're beginning to understand it at a gut level, but you have no capacity whatsoever at first for articulating it. And maybe you finally just got a handle on your theme and your writing partner comes in the room and you go like, I got it, I got it. And your writing partner is like, so what is it? What is it? Spit it out. And you're like, I can't yet. I got it. Leave me alone. Get out of my face. Let me just sit here with it because I got it. And people are feeling creatures that long before speech, people just felt. Animals do that. We're feeling creatures. And so the ability to look at the look at the, the protagonist's resolution and look at the way in which he or she resolves the dilemma will put you right on the theme that's actively emerging from organically in your story. And it may be diametrically opposed to what you thought the theme of your story was going to be. Starting with a sense of theme can often be troublesome because you can end up being preachy and trying to dictate that to the viewers or the readers as opposed to that which organically emerges as the story takes on a life of its own, the characters take on a life of their own. And you have to be able to, if you're still stuck saying that the theme is what you set out to have it be, you may be the one that's missing the boat. The view, if the viewers see that movie, they'll get it organically and carry it away in their gut. And think about it for a while if it's deep and compelling. And it may affect how they interact with people for the rest of their lives. Like they never yell at their kids again for the rest of their life or something like that because something was awakened in them. Even if they can't explain it, maybe, maybe later they'll be able to. But the important thing is that you changed them through 
a complete, the complete action of a compelling story. So being able to have a good, strong sense of theme that's really emerging from your story is critical because you as the writer need to be able to be in touch with the theme that is coming through the story. If you're still stuck on what you thought it was going to be, then you're missing the boat. You're missing the chance to work with the real theme, reinforce it, utilize it. And so your story will tend to be weaker or you're out of touch with what your story is actually doing. You know, it's like you raise your kid and my kid's going to be a doctor. My kid's going to be a doctor. And you still see that because you're intent on seeing that. But if you look at the reality of what your kid is doing, you'd be like, He's a jazz musician. Holy crap, I thought he was a medical school, but no, he is genuinely a jazz musician. So it's about what you want to see versus what's really there. And theme is huge because you want to be able to connect to the theme that's emerging from your story reasonably early in the process. Um, you could see that with the Derek story, I went right to Dilemma. And I was all, and once I'm working with Dilemma a bit, I'm looking ahead to Crisis, because that gives shape and, and focus to the theme. The theme is going to converge at the point of Crisis and force it a decision and action when there's like maybe 10 or 15 minutes left in the movie. And then the protagonist actively resolves the Dilemma once and for all. At, that's the ending of the story. And then, the way in which the protagonist resolves the dilemma enables you to put your finger on the theme that's actively emerging through that story. And you'll start early in the development process of your story, but you've already got a tentative statement or a tentative handle on your theme. You want to, that's why I said beware of the clever one-liner. Because if experts in creativity say there's often 10 right answers to a question, and if you seize on one of those and say, that's the answer, then you miss out on all the other layers of complexity. So again, it comes back to people's discomfort with a partially formed understanding. They, they, it freaks them out to dwell in that area where they sort of understand it, but not really. But that's the bread and butter of a writer where you're gradually morphing through evolving ideas. And once you can feel the theme and live with it and look at all the aspects of your story through the lens of your gradually evolving understanding of the theme, it will inform the whole story. Because the theme really is what the story is about. It's what they call the governing idea or the underlying philosophy of the story or that which is being said by the story. And it may be, again, it may be the opposite of what you set out to say or what you even want it to say. Uh, but that's what's really coming across to the audience. And that's, Price said that the theme, well, uh, let me read you this quote from him. 
Yeah. So, so this is Price writing in 1908 about playwriting. So it's talking about plays, but it's, it's exactly the same stuff. The highest form of play involves the philosophy of life so that, if the, so that if the theme is not worth considering, there is usually little substance in a play. With a theme, your play will be about something. Theme does not stand alone. No principle does. Mere theme will never make a play. But it is a definite something. It furnishes a spiritual atmosphere and the philosophy of the play. It gives the clue to the actual shaping of the play. The tone depends upon it. It is the largest unit of the play. That's a very interesting statement that the theme is the largest unit of the play. That's really interesting. For instance, the biggest organ in your body is your skin. So it's, it's that kind of thing. The theme is, is not infects the whole story. That's not the right word, but it's, it's spread throughout the whole story. It, it determines the shape and the tone of the story and all that stuff. So it's the ability to come to grips with it is important. And gradually, as you spend time living with it, your ability to articulate it will be enhanced until it kind of crystallizes. And then you're like, oh, yeah, now I can explain it quite clearly, like Sidney Pollack could say, the way that becoming a woman made a man out of Michael Dorsey. Like there's a really crisp, clear statement of what that story is about thematically. And it, and it helped him so much. And it gave a shape and a tone and helped him communicate with the actors and all that stuff. So it's a uh, very powerful aspect of the story. And the basics of it is you don't want to rush it. Let yourself dwell with a partially formed understanding of it and it will gradually gel and then crystallize. But not if you rush it. Jeff, for this interview, you've, you've touched on so many different parts of your courses and your book. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you will be incorporating into your, what is it, your two-year program that yeah. you've launched? Okay. And, and how that benefits writers? Yeah. Uh, it's the same tools that I've always been teaching, but what I used to do was 30-hour in intensive weekends, or 30 hours like every Tuesday night, three hours for 10 weeks. And the tools are complex and sophisticated so that firehose teaching is not at all the best way to instill deep know-how with these tools. And I wanted to really find a much better way to teach so that I spent a couple years just thinking about how to teach it differently and to teach bigger groups because it was always limited to six because I felt like I had to really get each person using the tool on their own script so they could get experience using the tools properly and see their stories respond to it. Um, the word of mouth for those classes was through the roof because people loved the tools they got a chance to really use them and their scripts improved quite a lot. But I felt like they couldn't go home and use these tools with expertise. 
You know, it's like somebody teaching you how to build a rocket and get it to the moon. You have to really study every part of it and break it down and integrate it and synthesize it into a comprehensive expertise. So, you know, I really studied the science of learning and the science of training people and expertise and, and the science of cognitive apprenticeship and found a way to teach a large group of people over a much longer amount of time. I found that I could turn people into seasoned, versatile dramatists who could make scripts work of any genre and could tackle any medium. And so, you know, it's a, it's a high intensity training program and it's still the hands-on intensive process that I've always done, but I've opened it up quite a bit. So the core of the program, the one thing that I'm actively doing as I teach is an 18 month period where all we're doing is constantly working on maybe six to eight different scripts of different genres and at different stages of development. So that one day we'll be working on an action comedy, the next day it might be a thriller and so on. So we're continually changing gears and moving from script to script. So you get, you get experience with different genres and and even different mediums. One will be for a screenplay, one will be a TV series, one will be a stage play. And one of them we're just starting out, one of them's mostly done. And everybody's working as a group and they're still doing writing assignments and exercises and learning games. And there's like group problem solving, like if we're stuck at the end of, you know, a, a thriller, trying to figure out how the murder actually goes down. Maybe we'll spend a whole week on it and are completely stumped. And so we have group problem solving where I'll have everybody coming up with ideas that, you know, like their assignment would be to go home and come up with 20 different ways to pull off this murder and then look at your 20 ideas and sort the best ones to the top and then put those best ones into the group and then everybody works together to sort those best ones to the top. So we may end up with 20 or 30 phenomenal ideas, the best of the best. And we all look at those and go, wow, these are really great. This one could really solve our problem. This one solves it and opens up an interesting stuff that would make us complicate the story earlier on. It like opens up a whole lot more this one is so good, we should set it over here and make a whole script out of it on its own. But it makes the students do the work themselves. It's not about them sitting back and watching me do this stuff. It's about me making them as proactive as possible so that the more expertise they acquire, the more they're integral, integral to the process so that if we come to like a horror film that's partly developed, there might be a team of advanced students who are actively working on that every day. And we say like, oh, so how's it going? And they say, well, we solved this. Now we're stuck here. We use this tool. And so-and-so came up with this phenomenal idea and it's, it's fun and we're doing great, but we're stuck here. And then everybody is 
participate on that as a group, and there might be a teaching moment where I end up giving a whole lecture on this particular aspect of one tool, and that teaching lecture becomes part of the permanent teaching library that anybody can go to at any time. And I'm basically turning these students into rough-and-tumble experts who can really tackle anything. Sometimes I feel like I'm training them to be like rodeo clowns or something, because I don't know if you know this, but rodeo clowns are high-skilled gymnasts. They're like really, really technically proficient in really, I mean, they go up against a 1,600-pound bull to distract it, to rescue the rider, and like they like grab a fence and leap, and they're like unbelievably skilled and rough and ready and can tackle anything. And, and so it's like that kind of versatility and flexibility and attack and high degree of skill in multiple highly technical tools. And you can throw them into a comedy or a horror film or a thriller. And they're like, I got this. And that's what, I'm, that's what they're all building toward. And so really, I only do one thing. And that's this open workshop where we're constantly building scripts. And that's all we're doing. And that's how I train people. And there's definitely teaching moments here and there as they come up. But it's about learn by doing. It's a real apprenticeship. We're really building real scripts in real time. And the challenge that I had when I, when I, when I was wrestling with how do I teach larger groups and teach differently, the question that finally freed me up was, okay, so if I could wave a magic wand and teach any way I wanted to, what would I do instead of stuck in all the limits and how do I get out of this? It was like, no, no, no. If I just could wave a magic wand and do anything, no limits, no anything, I was like, okay, well, I'd take two years and really train the crap out of them, like really train them. And then, okay, so if it's a two-year program, how do I make it so the big question was, how do I make it so people can join in? Because, you know, it's like you hear about the program and I want to join. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's another 14 months before the next one starts. That doesn't work. I was like, okay, so how can it be a continuously ongoing open workshop where we're just building scripts all the time? How do I make it so anybody can join in at any time? So I said, okay, so if there was a three-month training program that's basically a pre-recorded video program and it's the building of a complete script in those three months, it's kind of like a, a, a flight simulator where you take this three-month video program and I start on day one with a one-sentence idea for a thriller. And we're by the end of the day one, we've already got an idea up and running. We're looking at her dilemma already. And then and I, they have exercises and learning games and assignments, but not too much, but it's, it's intensive. And then day two, we're building more, and it's all me on video talking to them. But I'm giving them assignments and trying to make them as proactive as possible. And they're copying down the use of the tools and learning how to think and seeing and, and participating in the creation of this story. And even though they can't participate in the actual creation of it, because that three-month class may have been recorded two years ago, 
I still give them professional assignments. Say, okay, so she's stuck in this room and this person is watching her, but she's got to get a message to so-and-so or she's dead. I don't know how to do that. Your assignment is go home and come up with 20 different ways she might do that. And I'll show up the next day with my solution for that. And I can't interact with what they did because this was recorded years ago. But they had to really wrestle with the problem and really think it through. So I'm trying to make them as proactive and as involved in the process as possible. And as we use all the tools and they end up hand copying all the sequence proposition plot we do as we construct it. And then once we've done it, we've done it for the overall story. They've hand copied that, done it for each act. They've hand copied that just a few pages each day do the, all the sequences, and then we come to the first scene and we structure that scene and they actually write that scene. And then the next day we structure the next scene and they write that scene. We go all the way through and they, each person writes their own version of this thriller. And when that's, when they've got their own version, that graduates them into the 18 month program. So it's a way to give them enough exposure to the process, see all the tools in action. They're not tasked with trying to learn the tools. Their main job is to observe everything, to get oriented. So they see the whole process. And then when I'm training them intensively in the 36 dramatic situations, and they're like, I hate this. Why is he having us do this over and over again? They're not going, I hate this. They're going, oh, I see how immensely valuable it is because we did it there. And so not only are they oriented and they've seen the whole thing, so they understand how each part functions as part of the whole, but when they come out of that three-month video recording program, they can jump into the 18-month program, and we may be spending the whole week figuring out the ending of a romantic comedy. And they can jump right in. They know, they understand sequence, proposition, plot, dilemma, all these things. It's not foreign to them, so they can jump right in and participate. So that means in this ongoing 18-month thing, they can join in at any time. And then as they acquire more and more expertise, and I give more and more responsibility to them and challenge them more, and they always have to be able to articulate their thinking process as they wrestle with the tools so that the experts toward the end of the 18 months, I can say to them as they're wrestling with the ending of a ghost story, I'd say, okay, so articulate what you're thinking. And they'd be like, well, okay, so we have a good, strong dilemma, but we're still struggling with the crisis. We have this, this, and this for the crisis. And I'd say, have you thought of that? And they'd be like, good point. They'd throw, they're not thrown. Or I'd say like, wait, you did that wrong. And they're like, well, so what? I'd be like this, this. And they go, oh, of course. Like they're, they're almost there, you know? They're like, and everybody's learning from that. And, and the more and more expertise, the the more they don't need me, my instructional voice is internalized into their own process. They can emulate my thinking process. They can emulate, they have the metacognitive skills to evaluate their own professional process. So they can be like, I'm doing the technique properly, but I shouldn't even be focusing on that because here's the main question. So to be able to challenge their own professional skills and kick themselves out of bed and reverse their own trajectory and all that is important. Then in order to graduate from the program, 
they do the last three months, which is to build a script on their own, still in this open workshop. And we've been throwing ideas that people don't so much care about into the group story bin and even working on them. So they pick an idea from the group story bin, develop it, build it in an open workshop that's open to everybody. And it's like a teaching hospital where I'll come by with the whole group and go, how's it going? Where are you at? And they'd be like, well, I solved this. Oh, that's great. That was a hard hump to get over. And they're like, tell me about it. And this is the tool I'm using now. Here's where I'm stuck. I may have some insight or I might say, wow, that's brilliant. And the other students may have questions and they're articulating their thought process. And when they complete that script, they can graduate. And they take that script with them. It's theirs. Or they could, if they want more, they can do another one like that. Or they can also stay in the group. They may like collaborating with the people they've been through it with. And they can be in private sessions where they still have this as like their writer's group and a coffee shop. And they have people who can read their drafts and brainstorm with them. So that, that kind of interactive capability with people who know the same tools is there for graduates. And it's... It's not open to the other people because they want to be really working their scripts now, but they may like the, the, the community. So that's an option too. So it's really the 18-month. There's three months to get into it. It's kind of like if you're going to go up and work on the space station, NASA will put you through a training, and then you can go up in the space station. You're not going to get people killed, and you can operate in zero-G and you know, know how to function in an emergency and all that stuff. And then the last three months... You do it all on your own, which completes the, the synthesis of all your skills and your abilities and your, you know, your, your functionality to where you feel like you can go off and do your own thing or stick around and keep working with you know, the same community in a private format that's not open to the whole group, but you can still interact with people. So that's the basics of it. It's been fun to create. It's been really challenging. And just trying to figure out all the things and integrate all the new learning techniques that I've found and keep challenging myself. And it's been, and it still is, I'm still in the middle of creating it. And it's, it's fascinating again. It was, I got burnt out on teaching the same thing nonstop for 18 years. It was really good to get a break. And now it's really fun to come back into it.